like to welcome everyone to today's show of truth. Today's episode, we have you know our special guests on here, Christopher Hoyer. The book, When That Day Comes, Training for the Fight. We're going to be doing another book reading through the chapters and having a discussion. We got another special guest, John Hall, 12-year law enforcement. And, you know, he's going to be adding to the discussion as well, too, and giving insight on how he can relate to a lot of the things that Christopher did. So many of you already know that this book right here, it's a ride-along book. You know, if anybody's, you know, looking to get into the academy, it'll, it'll actually help you have the insight of what to look forward to, the real-life experiences and everything else. And it's a... It'll, it'll help the veterans and the superiors as well, too. And with no, with no further ado, Christopher, welcome. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Get the kind of loud back there. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to mute as soon as this is done that way because it's, <laughs> it's actually starting to pour down rain. That's just my luck, you know. But uh, I'm going to go yes. ahead and mute myself while, you know, you guys converse and everything else as well, too. No worries, man. No worries. And then, John uh, – while during this discussion of, you know, one, once Chris is reading his chapters, if you could kind of give insight as well, too, on, you know, things that you see in the field that you can relate to and kind of give insight for the viewers as well. Absolutely. Yeah, actually, if, uh, hey, John, if I'm reading and you want me to stop, just you know, yell or something like that, because I have a tendency just to run on, so... There's something that you want to discuss in the middle of that whole thing, just just stop me, man. Seriously. So all right. Cool. So it's weird to get so quiet. I know. Oh, oh no, I I, I muted myself. No, it's just it's on you now, Christopher. Wherever you want to take off, let me know. I'm all right, ready cool. to do my read along. Right. <laughs> read along. Yeah, it's a good one. I like that. So <laughs> um so for uh, folks that don't know, we started reading this thing, uh, where are we at here, um, about a month ago or something like that. So I think we're leaving it ahead because Michael and I never seem to shut up. You know, he goes on and I go on forever. So I think we're only up to chapter two, so we got a long way to go. Well, on top of that as well, too, you blessed us on the last reading with those end chapters that you added on with the, uh, the endorsed book by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. That's true. Yeah, I forgot about that. So, yeah. So. Cool. Well, all this stuff, uh, so chapter two on for now is going to be part of the original thing. Um, Natalie and I, my girlfriend, she um, she helped me re-edit the book after we did the first original version and then got uh, Dave Grossman on board. I had, uh, ended up adding four new chapters toward the end of the book. So, um, But we go back and read those another time if we want to, but um, for now, I'll stick with chapter two, and then in, in the middle of it all, if you guys have questions or what have you, then uh, let me know. So, All right, so uh, chapter two is uh, titled Cops and Robbers. So the first time I was asked the question, so why do you want to be a cop? Uh, it was in a formal setting uh, full of pol potential police new hires. I said, me? I think it's going to be fun to chase bad guys, carry a gun, and drive as fast as I want. Cops and robbers in the Wild West, right? Oh, yeah. Screeching halt. Um, yeah, son, we're not looking to hire cowboys here, so let's try this again. Let us fast forward to a formal meeting with the brass, or uh, we conducted police academy intros. So I've been there. And so, uh, so recruit, why do you want to be an officer? Uh, well, sir, I want to rid the 
world of bad people so that my daughter and her friends have a safer place to grow up. Uh, yeah, right. My first answer was the truth, and the truth was I made a career out of having fun. Uh, not all the time, but like they say, when you're working a dream job, it's not work. That's a true story. Uh, I would like to believe that I did my, my share of making the world a bit safer, though. I certainly tried. I do have a list of folks who may or may not be back in society who would, let's just say, like to thank me for my efforts. To them, I'd say, if you've been reformed and you're reading this, I hope these words find you. I probably can't read anyways. Kind of insulting, but uh, you know, it's just the way it is, man. Sorry, guys. Well, there's, a lot, there's a lot of truth that, and I want to uh, jump in here because, you know, during one of my broadcasts with John, you know, it's one of the things I always ask everybody is, you know, what kind of got you into the field? You know, and I, I know, you know, in your book here, you're saying about the, the driving fast and chasing bad guys. You know, and John has a similar story to where, I mean, I'm like, because, you know, his, his father was in law enforcement prior to him joining and things like that. And he had different things in his life that, you know, kind of led into that. And it's, it's important, too, for individuals looking to get into this career. And that's why I love this book so much with that beginning to end of the decision originally made and the progression throughout, you know, and, and, and John, as you shared earlier, I mean, is it something that, that you look forward to as well, as far as the, the chasing the bad guys and the driving fast and everything as well, or. You know, honestly, the, the, maybe the longer this job, the longer that, you know, I guess the older I get, the less driving fast really interests me. I realize how much can go bad, but you also don't want to let them get away and hurt somebody else. <laughs> yeah, very true. I had a, in 2006, I ended up starting my first and, well, actually started my last pursuit of my career. And I was only on at that point for not even 10 years. And I wrote about that in the book as well, of course, but Basically, long, long, long story short, and I won't reveal everything now, but I had a guy uh, crash his truck into a bus stop full of people. And I had done many fatals before. I'd seen all kinds of dead people and stuff like that. It really didn't bother me that much. But when I saw it happen in front of my face, man, that changed everything. That changed my whole outlook on chasing bad guys. And that was the last time I ever called a pursuit. After that, it was, you know, we'll just – find a better way to catch these guys because you know they're going to run 100 percent, and we just can't keep up with that safely anyways so you know and, and that's a great point and i shared with john just yesterday or whatever that uh you know there was a uh mike magley you know his end of watch was 217 of this year and he was in pursuit and he was and he was hit by a drunk driver while he was in pursuit so, you know, we, we never know how it's going to turn out, you know, as we go into pursuit. And, and it could just be, you know, a, a by-the-book stop. But in that pursuit, I mean, you see it all the time where anything can go wrong because, you know, the surroundings were, you know, any time that, you know, we engage, it's not just, you know, ourselves and the subjects. You know, we have the environment around if there's anybody there, and, and especially when it comes to pursuits. Regardless of how careful we are or how cognizant we are of, hey, my eyes on the target, you know, the surrounding, uh, you know, civilian sectors could affect that pursuit, as you just described, Chris. Yeah. Um, I, I, 
sorry, I'll add something to that. Uh, you know, people want to know why we why we pursue or you know get their tag number. You can run it. We had a officer that used to be with us. Um, I take that back. This was actually a, a city officer next to us. Started a pursuit. It was a traffic infraction. You know, why are you chasing them? That's just they were speeding. They ended up running down the highway and uh, wrecked trying to get on the interstate in Tennessee, which we're right next to Tennessee. It ended up being a kidnapping and process. So people don't realize, you know, hey, they're speeding. That's that's all there is to it. He didn't even know this was going on and happened to try to pursue them and, and you know, and ended up stopping it. Well, that's a, that's a great point because, I mean, the, the age-old question, well, we don't know why we're chasing them but we don't know why we're chasing them. Right. I mean, we don't know why they're running. So, you know, you got to make that decision. And it's like, well, is you know, is the juice worth the squeeze sometimes? And then when you find out later on that it was some major incident that you had no knowledge of. And I mean, John, you've been on a long time. You know that how many guys really run just because they're suspended or just because they're speeding. I mean, very few, I mean, usually something bigger. Um, in all reality, most times it's just dope or something stupid like that, um, which, more often than not, my my experience has shown me that's really not worth chasing for. But again, you know, and in, in our bleak defense, if you want to call it that, you know, it's it's almost that contempt of cop where it's like, oh, you're you're running, I'm going to chase you. I mean, it's, it's for me. I mean, I joke about it now. It's almost like a birth defect. It's like, well, I, I have no choice. They take off. I got to go after them, kind of a thing, you know. Um, but I was humbled. I was disciplined quite a bit, um, overseeing some pretty bad stuff, and I realized that mostly that comes with experience and knowledge and wisdom and these kinds of things, you know, all the, all the veteran stuff that, you know, when you're younger, you just want to chase them until the wheels fall off. And then you realize that, man, because somebody got hurt on your watch, you start to realize that, man, it's, there's gotta be a smarter way to do these kinds of things, you know? So. Well, it, it's even different. People can, can say, you know, we're here a fatality or they got hit by a car crossing the road. It's not the same until you see it. Uh, one of the first chases, I'm not going to say I wasn't involved in it. I got there right after the fact, just because of where I was. Uh, one of the bigger cities, I was with the sheriff's department. One of the bigger cities was in a chase with a motorcycle. A uh, guy ended up being DUI. And I didn't see it, but I immediately got there afterwards. He was going straight down a road, trying to make a slight right-hand angle to keep going across the highway. He didn't make it and he hit the railroad tracks. I have no idea how fast he was going, but he flew up. I found him first, probably 30 feet away from the motorcycle. Hmm. And I'll always remember he didn't make it. And I'll always remember that death breathing, Definitely. You know, that, that unconscious gasping for breath. And you cannot get that out of your mind. Yeah. Um, another instance that I actually did see, I was just, Cruising down the road about 40 mile an hour, maybe, if that. And uh, a guy crossed the road walking in front of me, and I noticed that didn't look right. Just something about it. He didn't he didn't check up and look across the road like he should have. And it, it caught my attention. When he gets across, there's a my lane, a turning lane, and another lane, the opposite direction. And he makes it to the turning lane as I drive by, and I just happen to look behind me watching him. He walked directly out in front of a truck and got hit. And the sight of a, 
I'm not sure if he made it or not, but the sight of a, a human body flying through the air and sliding down the asphalt is something you will never forget. Oh, yeah, no, I, I agree, man. All day long that, you know, a pedestrian got hit by a car, you never know the extent of it until you actually see it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, on a kind of a funnier note, I had something similar like that happen to me. I was chasing these guys in a stolen one day, and they all bailed out, and the one kid couldn't get out the, the uh, passenger side. So he came out the driver's side door and ran right in front of my car. <laughs> I mean, it was like, dude, I'm sorry, but I, I can't stop in time. So I hit him, and then he hit the ground, and then he got back up, and my momentum was still carrying me forward. And I actually hit him a second time, and he got up. And so my boss gets up there. She's like, so let me get this straight. You hit him twice in the same stop. And I'm like, well, see, what happened was, you know. Yeah, and, he got up, and he freaking bolted, man. It was great. It was funnier than shit, so. <laughs> Like, it's not my fault he didn't learn the first time. Well, you know, hey, I mean, if he, I mean, seriously, if he had just stayed in the car and been like, hey, man, I had no idea what was going on, he would have left, he would have walked home that day. But now, obviously, he got up and ran. Well, you got to be guilty of something. So, you know, it's like, it's like the passengers have an unwritten rule if the driver bails out, they must go with him. <laughs> apparently so, man. I thought that was just a West Coast thing, but apparently so. So, anyway. So hey, I'll uh, I'll pick it back up and start reading smart. That's cool. You well, guys. yeah, yeah. I mean, there's one more thing I want to add to that as well too. That you know, a lot of individuals need to be cognizant of, and that's the importance of dispatch, especially when it comes to pursuit like that. You know what I mean? A lot of times, you know, you're communicating with dispatch for other officers or you know, for assistance to come and everything else. To where it's the they help us as well too about different traffic and you know ways to go, ways to deter, things like that as well too. So, and, and I'll tell this: it's hard, especially if you're not in your own city. Uh, my dispatcher can attest to this. There recently, um, I was just I was in another city right next to mine talking to an officer. I just dropped off somebody for the city over to carry somewhere and. Um, you know, he goes, hey, I think that car's got to switch tag. I'm going to go stop him. Okay, cool. I'm going to go back to my city. And, and you can't describe this, but as I was driving by, there's a, a highway, a two-lane highway that turns off. It goes across the highway I was on. And I was thinking, I was like, man, that, that smells, and this makes no sense to people that don't know it. This smells like they just hammered that car trying to get away. Mm-hmm. It's just got that smell. Oh, yeah. And uh, I hit scan and I heard him, you know, chasing one down. I, I hit my lines. I whip around the wrong direction going up the on-ramp. I'm like, you know, I'm going to I'm, I'm gonna help this guy. And I give out the wrong road. We have a highway that goes through our city. And they have a different highway. They give out the wrong road. Adrenaline. But even when you get out the right road, they bail out. It's hard to stop. Tell them exactly where you're at, what you're doing. While this person's running, getting away, right. so that's that's a good way to piss off dispatches. Not giving enough. <laughs> We're passing twelve. Oh wait, hold on, another walnut. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, yeah. All right, let's uh, get going on here. So, all right, next. Uh, same chapter first. Yeah, police academy. So, all right, after working in a property room for two weeks, it was academy time. Waiting for a class to start is commonplace for recruits. Uh, there are three or four of us working together. We did a little bit of studying in between our daily duties, mostly trying to figure out what we were in for. Property room for us for Phoenix is more like a property city block, an enormous warehouse filled to the brim with every imaginable thing. It's like a yard sale for an entire city. 
impressive and somewhat entertaining. However, there's not much to learn there, at least not for the level of responsibility about to be put on us. Moving heavy objects and painting was not exactly my idea of police work, but it was a means to an end. And of course, in the meantime, we were trying to stay in shape. This was my first venture in failure. Hey, rookies, we're going running. Are you coming with us? Um, by the way, when you hear this from a training officer, this is not a request. Now, we'll just uh, stay here and wait to hear how it went. I joked, of course, of course we're going. Uh, this was my chance to impress the boys, right? Uh, wrong, big mistake. The brass does not care, nor do they mind letting you know that you, when you've screwed up. Uh, it's a good thing was, I was smart enough to, to know that if I didn't go on this run, it would look really bad. Again, this was not a request. Physically speaking, I had some issues caused from a career in floor repair. The long and short of it, I had bad knees, and I didn't know how bad until the third or fourth long-distance run. Uh, the mile and a half was all I ever did. Just could pass the testing process, right? Uh, um, no. uh, now, I admit, when I graduated academy, I was capable of running marathons. Uh, prior to that, not so much. Uh, we're talking an eight-mile trail run, all mountain terrain. Halfway through, I pretty much blew up my knee. Basically, I was running with no tendons, bone on bone. Did I quit like a normal person? No. Uh, I kept going because how would it look if I quit? And, of course, I didn't say anything during the run. See how smart I am? So, first day of the academy, physical training was anything but fun, especially when I told the training staff I was physically out of commission. I was extremely fortunate uh, that the knee injury was minor. It can be fixed with stretches and lots of ibuprofen. Uh, but speaking up, put a target on my back. Better step up. Academy was mostly fun, lots to learn. There was some stuff uh, we were we recruits questioned as a group, but elected to keep our mouths shut. I was minded on my stepdad and the times I questioned him, like, when am I ever going to need algebra? Probably never again, but guess what, Dad? Quipped, you need it right now. And how does anyone argue with that logic? Jeez. So, uh, even I use that on my, line, on my own kids from time to time. And of course, laugh my ass off for recycling parental rhetoric. Meanwhile, back at the academy, I found myself contending with the same logic as in, I'm never going to be, be a DUI motor cops. So why am I doing this? Because right now, okay, shut up and learn. Okay, and I'm getting paid to learn? Really, shut up, smile, and learn. It's kind of a big deal if you think about it. Getting paid to learn. I never considered that as a benefit when I chose this career, but it certainly didn't hurt. There are many on-the-job training opportunities in the world of law enforcement. And what could be better than getting paid to learn how to shoot as well as learn defensive tactics and tactical driving? All good stuff. Sign me up. On the first day of the academy, something strange happened. One entire state over from ours was a launching site for rocket testing. On that chilly December morning, we were all standing in the parking lot, shivering from anticipation more than the cold. And suddenly the most beautiful pink image appeared over the open skyline. Not knowing what it was, we all stared in amazement. It wasn't until later that we learned it was rocket testing. I only had one thought. Is that rocket symbolic of my new career? A little fantasy-oriented, I have to say. I was already feeling quite accomplished just getting to that point. I had no idea where this ride was going to take me. In my mind, it was a wise choice. This career path full of challenges, both good and bad, appeared to be full of life, real life, and it was definitely worth the fight to get there. So that's the end of Chapter 2. So, yeah, Academy days were... Uh, they were crazy, man. They were um, all just filled with all kinds of just crazy stuff. I've got another story that I'll have to read on another chapter where I decided to uh, go blow up my gun. That was all kinds of fun. So, man. <laughs> uh, that, that market could be symbolic of, uh, you know, some of the uh, stressful and uh, 
panic that something succeeds in our line of work. Oh yeah, oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I wanted to touch base on. So, Chris shared with us about how you know he went back to Phoenix, you know, kind of visit the boys and everything, and uh, how he ran across one of the brothers that stated that they would never draw fire on. They, they, they just knew that they would never draw that. And, you know, Chris made the comment. He said, you know, how could you say that? Now, John, within your department, do you ever experience or do you have any brothers or sisters on the force that, you know, refuse to draw a firearm or really feel that they never will if it comes time for that? I mean, because it's an important topic, you know, just as Chris was just describing about, you know, in the academy. But, I mean, is it something that, any brothers or sisters have openly said that oh, I know I'll never draw fire on. I've, I've never had that. And, and honestly, I've never thought about that. That thought blows my mind. Uh, that's just about saying you're not going to defend yourself. And how are you going to defend anybody else if you're not willing to do what it takes to save yourself? Tell you what, man, I couldn't agree more. And Michael, since we talked, uh, my buddy called me again and said that he had another incident. Um, I don't know the specifics on it, but basically, long story short, they were chasing this dude. Um, he just happened to be in the right place at the right time, working off duty. The guy came over the fence. Um, my buddy tased him, took him into custody by himself. And then he got questioned because he hadn't, didn't turn on his body camera. And he called me flat out. He goes, I'm done. I'm not doing any more work for the rest of my career. And I'm like, oh, man. Ugh. And so it's it's very disheartening for me because, you know, he's going to do the bare minimum. And I, I know a lot of guys that are in that same that same mentality, that same mindset right now. And I haven't had a chance to really call him back and tell him my thought process on that whole thing. But um, what I am going to tell him at some point in time and anybody that's listening that may or may not agree and please hit me up with whatever you think, but I'm of the mindset of, you know, I never forgot what it was like when I'm sitting in the uh, background investigator's office going, I'm going to do whatever it takes, you know? And despite all the, all the bad shit that I went through, even with 20 years on right before I retired, I was still out there doing what I was sworn to do. Um, when we were in uh, Vegas last weekend, somebody, I don't remember where it was because it was kind of a blur. That that whole weekend was unbelievable, by the way. And anybody that hasn't gone, um, highly, highly recommend it. It was one of the great greatest times I've ever had in my entire life. But somewhere during that whole thing, somebody had read their their oath of office, and I had forgotten all about that. I'm like, oh my god, you know, that is that is huge. That is something that you have committed your life and career to, and that's that's a freaking big deal, man. I'm not I'm not. Just saying that just because I think it's a great thing. Um, we get up there and you, you know, swear on, on your badge and whatever else, however your your agency does it for you. Um, and when you when you get to the point where you just plan on not working anymore, I, I got a big problem with that, man. It's time to go, you know. But and I, I'm gonna touch a couple of things and, and John, just to kind of give you a, a briefing on it, to where Chris actually had, and correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, I believe it was in your in your 18 year career, you had four critical incidents, correct? Or was it three? Because the fourth one was the one that kind of set it over the top. But you had four critical incidents, correct? Correct. Well, okay. I mean, four. I mean, I, mean, I had hundreds and hundreds, but four that really were significant with the shootings. Yeah. Right, and, and and to touch base on that, and that's why I push you so much, and that's why 
I love having John on as well, too, because, you know, just despite size of departments or anything else like that, you know, we, we can make a difference in that. And that's why it's so critical for you to make it inside these agencies, Chris, because it, it is a discussion that needs to be had with the cadets, with the veterans, with the superiors, because, you know, it's always going to be led by example. But you going in there and having that where, you know, the, the shock value that you provide you're going to have to make these folks, these individuals second guess if they need to second guess right now, rather than like what John just said in regard to, you know, hesitation. You're, you're, you're risking your own life. You're risking your fellow brothers and sisters lives. And on top of that, you're, you're risking civilians lives. So, you know, you going in there with the shock value that you possess, it needs to be done on a critical level, on a very critical level. Because you need to let them know that, hey, look, I know that because on every application nationwide, every law enforcement agency, when we go in there, we have to check that box if we will, you know, take a life if need be. I mean, it doesn't work like that, but we check that box that, yes, I will fire if need be, you know, but they do it just to check that box and to, you know, receive the job. But that training outside of the physicality and everything else really needs to be addressed with that shock value. Like you're going to be facing incidents like this. Are you willing to take another human life if it be needed? You know and I mean? And, you know, in the academy and everything else, we're trained to shoot torso because legs moves, arms moves, heads move. Torso is the part that, you know, no matter what, it's going to be there. So just because we're taking a shot doesn't necessarily mean that every time a shot is taken that, you know, our intent is to take another's life. You know, and that's a big misconstruction that, you know, the general public has is that, oh, my God, they're shooting to kill. And that's not the case any of them. I'm, I'm not going to say any of the time, but any of the time that's not, you know, we're just trying to decapacitate the subject. You know what I mean? So it, it's vital that you go in there. And then to, to touch base on Troy's statement right here that's on the screen right now, you and I have had a discussion about this. Mike Zanito and I had a conversation about this. Chris Gregorio had a conversation about this, about how almost every agency nationwide has discarded the physical fitness test. And it really does need to be brought in because if somebody's incapacitated, so John, so Chris had an experience to where his, his backup couldn't jump a fucking six foot wall. It was like a four foot wall. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a shootout on a rooftop. So it's like, you know, he couldn't even have backup. So, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's critical. And I mean, Chris, I'm telling you what you have, the shock value, John, you as well. It needs to be provided to these cadets, to the veterans that think they know every fucking thing, to the superiors even more and everything else, Chris. So we just, I mean, thank you again for coming on here, reading this book. And I, I love hearing these chapters go into discussions and everything else as well, too. Yeah, dude, it's just absolutely my pleasure. But I'll tell you, here's here's the thing, and I know it makes perfect sense. And I was I was that guy too in twenty it was like twenty thirteen, I guess. Um, however much time I had on at that point, you know, twelve, fifteen, whatever many years it was. Um, I lost the heart for it. I really did. I just I kind of gave up and I'm like, why why am I doing this? This is just and it was really very unusual time because I just got to a brand new precinct, which was great. Had a brand new Tahoe, got a great partner, had a rifle now. You know, everything was just 
perfectly lined up for me. And I lost a heart for it. And, you know, it took a little bit of doing. And I, I know I didn't quit, obviously, but I figured out how to, how to rally myself and, and reinvent that love and get back out there. And then it, it took a little time. It probably took a couple of months. Um, so for the guys that are kind of facing that, and I believe you want to tell you, this was, it was all just my own disheartened belief that, you know, I'm, I've kind of passed that threshold. I don't have anything else I need to do in this community. Um, and that was a very, very minor thing. Now, what the guys are facing on the street these days, I, I can't even fathom that. So I'm not going to fault anybody for saying, you know, this is bullshit. We're getting defunded and all everything else that goes along with it. So, um, so my my advice to folks is that if you if you truly feel like you have nothing else to contribute to this community, just call it quits because chances are, in in my humble opinion that if you leave now with a year or five years or whatever you've earned your stripes and you can walk away with your head held high and i have no problem with that whatsoever but just like john says if you're not going to engage and you're not going to do what you signed up to do to protect the community you know your people your partner yourself or anybody else i'm going to be harsh when i say this get the fuck out you have no business doing this job anymore that's, that's a hard way to say it and i get it but if you're not going to do that, dude, go, I mean, go find something else. And you can still walk away with your head held high because you've, you've kind of earned that that right to say, you know what, I'm, I'm getting treated really, really badly and it's just not fair. And I'm going to go on another little tangent. Sorry to say it this way as well, but um, we don't get to be cops when everything is all on our side. You know, we're not out there flipping burgers and bagging groceries, you know, we're into the bad shit. People don't call us to come and have barbecues and drink beer with them. We're out there for the bad stuff all the time. And because it's going bad, I'm probably going to get a lot of shit thrown at me for this. And I apologize in advance, but just because it's bad doesn't mean you got the right to freaking leave because, you know, you signed up for this shit. And I'm not saying I don't, I hate that statement. I really, really do. But you signed up for the good as well as the bad. And you got to take both on board. Um, so if you are struggling, just take some time to yourself if you can figure out a way to just kind of reinvent yourself, reinvent the love that you had back in those days when you're sitting in the background investigators. I was going, dude, I'll do whatever it takes, you know. And again, I went on some long thing. My apologies for that, but that's no, I mean that that that's needed. And what's funny about that is John and I just the other day had a conversation about this. Like when you said that, hey, if you can't do the job, you know, get the fuck out. Is that that needs to be done. Because, like you just said about reinventing yourself, and you, you had to refine that passion, Chris. John made it, you know, because, you know, John was open about everything of, like, when he entered law enforcement, he took a fucking pay cut from a, super, uh, from a management role at Walmart to enter into his career in law enforcement. So, you know, those ones that are hesitating that are going to cause, you know, myself or fellow brothers, sisters, civilians, their lives or anything else, you know, they should get the fuck out and you'll probably get paid more at Walmart, which that's a sad case and a whole different discussion, you know, but, you know, and also it's just, you know, John related to everything you just said, our last conversation. So, John, if you want to kind of take off on this as well, too, and kind of, you know, fill Chris in on the conversation that we have. Uh, I've actually got a couple of things to add uh, on some stuff that you said. 
I can sum a lot of that up in two phrases. Uh, you know, one, you don't shoot to kill, you shoot to neutralize a threat. It, that pretty much, you know, attests to everything. If the threat's neutralized, then you've done your job. Unfortunately, sometimes it takes more than others to do that. But, you know, that's what it comes out. We want to stop the threats, all it is. Um, and if, like I said, if you're not willing to defend yourself, how are you going to save somebody else? Are you going to sit there and let somebody else, you know, get hurt or killed because you're not willing to step up and, I mean, do, for lack of better words, do the dirty part of the, the job that you have to do. Um, I mean, I you've got to put yourself past somebody else to do the job. You can't put yourself ahead of them. If you put yourself ahead of them, then you're going to endanger somebody. Um, you know, and you're right. You know, if you if you don't want to do this job anymore, you need to get out because it, it seems simple, but take into consideration how any given call will be handled by somebody that is burnt out and doesn't give a shit versus somebody that actually cares and has a passion for the job. Just how that call is handled can be a, a big deal. And especially depending on the call, you know, how big of a deal can, can vary greatly. Well, on top of that, when, when we sign our lines and, you know, we another brother, Chris Gregorio, said it perfectly that, you know, when we sign our line or, or sign our names to the line of any respective jurisdiction that we serve, you know, we're saying that we're going to put our lives before any of our brothers, sisters, or civilians. So that part of that service stating that if I'm not willing to do that, I'm in the wrong field and I do need to step out. I mean, because we... that. It's a contract, just like when we joined the military. It's, hey, I'm willing to do this, you know, and it's just that I'm going to put my life before anybody else's life, you know, to protect them and my fellow brothers, sisters, and anybody else that's there. So, yeah. Well, uh, no, good. Yeah. Good. Um, one thing that I have an issue with, and just to put it bluntly, it pisses me off whenever I hear people say, well, you signed up for that. You, you knew what you were getting into. I, I did. But does that make my life worth less because of what I, I agreed to do and I knew I signed up for? Because I'm trying to help other people. You know, what are you doing while you're sitting here criticizing me? You know, basically saying that my life's not as good or not as worth as much because I knew what I was signing up for when I put myself in a dangerous situation trying to help someone else. I think that uh, I saw Lindsay said it best. It's all about your mindset. I'm going to take it a couple of steps further, but I think that, well, actually I'm going to say, I'm going to say this another way. I hope that, you know, God willing, when the time comes, when the the guys are saying, I'm not going to engage when that time comes, when they've got to actually do it, they make the right decision and realize that, Hey, you know what? I, I do remember why, I, you know, I signed that line. Um, and if they, if they falter and they say, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get in that fight. I'm not going to chase this guy. I'm not going to defend my partner. Yeah, it's, it's time to leave, man. No kidding. Um, and again, it's not because of anything necessarily bad. I mean, you're going to get burned out. There's, it's a statistical fact with this career. You're going to get burned out at some point in time. Um, unfortunately, what I've seen with a lot of the younger generation guys is they're getting burned out a whole lot faster than I did. Um, it took me over 10 years before I finally hit that, that plateau. Um, and I've seen guys with, you know, three or four years on and 
my old agency, you got to do 25 years now before you hit your pension. That dude, that's a long time to be suffering through a career that you can't stand. So, um, but the next theory of mine is also, you know, if you, if you know, you're that guy, cause believe me, I'll tell you, man, I was that dude. And I'm like this, you know, whatever my, my big problem was the first thing I did, thank God I had a good boss. I went to my supervisor and said, Hey man, I need, I need some time, whatever it is. Send me to the range, send me to freaking, you know, to a desk or whatever it is. So I can get my head straight and get back on, back on the horse and God willing, you've got good supervision. Um, or if you're lucky enough to work for a, a big enough agency where they can move you around, um, that's, that's huge as well. And of course we all know, I mean, it's very much like a stigma of saying you're not okay. You know, when you, you approach your boss that way and there, the big fear is that, oh, now you're not fit for duty. And it's like, well, okay. So you've got to really be delicate with that depending on your supervision. Um, and I get it, but you know, what I realized about myself was, um, especially after my major incident back in 2016, that I was pretty much a liability being out there. I had no business being on the street whatsoever. And, you know, I got like, they pretty much forced my hand and sent me back out there. And dude, I'm telling you, I was, I was fucking terrified. I mean, I was absolutely plain clothes with my most trusted adversary sitting right beside me, fully geared up, you know, not even doing anything. And I'm like hyper freaking paranoid. Um, first, first, so I knew that I had no reason to be out there. And if you know that where you are in your, in your respective career position right now, go find something else. Even if you don't have to quit, just go, whatever it is, take your, take your leave time if you can. I mean, there's gotta be another way because we stay out there. You guys all know this, man, you're, you're a ticking time bomb. And sometimes you don't know that until somebody else points it out. But and I didn't know that. I swear to God, I had no idea that I was such a disaster until somebody else said, "Hey, man, you're not okay." Uh, no, I'm good. All right, you know we all know how that goes. It's like whatever, dude. Um, so it's, this- easy to, uh, it's easy to forget where you're at because you're going down gradually. You know, it, it's harder for you to see something gradual than they say. You know, hey, man, there's a big change in you. Oh yeah, yeah. And you know, it's- I was. I was always that guy. I was super mellow, you know, nothing ever got to me. And all of a sudden now I'm just freaking snapping at guys for no reason. My buddies are like, what's up with you, man? What? What? You know, like, I'm sorry. We we're trying to get on your bad side, but that's where I was. And, it, you know, it finally hit me that I'm like, holy shit, man, I've, I've seen and done too much in my career. And I need to I need to start taking care of myself. You know, luckily, I was able to do that. Thank God. So, yeah, me and. Me and uh, Michael had actually went over that. Your supervision, your bosses make a world of difference. Uh, you know, if you're afraid to go to your boss, afraid that they are going to deem you, hey, you're unfit or you're not strong enough, you're you're too weak for this job. You know, that's not the, the case. But when when you feel that's how they're going to react, you don't want to tell them. You want to just suck it up and get through it. And that's that's a dangerous thing. Very dangerous, familiar. especially when you're carrying a gun. You know, I mean, so. Well, that's one of the big issues, too, with the, the whole mental health aspect of everything. You know, John, John and I got into a pretty in-depth thing, and he shared some personal things with us that, you know, when, when we deal with certain things and, you know, we're afraid that our superiors or supervisors are going to, you know, lash out or make us seem not fit for duty, 
we have that second guessing. And then all of a sudden, and, and Chris, you and I had this conversation to where you just told him, like, hey, look, you know, if, if you're not going to let me do the job I was hired to do, then fucking, you, you know, leave it be. And it, do, it does. So, I mean, and they're putting that pressure on you, but they're not the ones out there doing it. And John and I even had a discussion about, you know, when he was going on a call and, you know, he happened to stop somebody on his way to a call in the same superior that, you know, stopped somebody to a live call. <laughs> it's like, you know, there, there's so much, you know, hypocrisy that goes on, but it's like, you know, you were trusted to be, you know, handed to shield, handed to gun. Let me do my fucking job. You know, I mean, as long as I'm within policy and as long as, you know, I'm not, you know, extraditing or, you know, just, you know, making situations worse, you know, and, and like John just said, you know, I'm, my job is to defuse the situation. So if I'm able to utilize the resources that I have and the training that I have and stay within policy, let me do my fucking job, period, you know? Well, I'll tell you what, man, really quick, I got to touch on that because here's the problem that I was facing a couple of different times with really two of my bosses, one who is now a really close friend of mine, the other one not so much, but that's a whole story. Um, what happens when you start questioning or you're, you're getting your abilities questioned by your boss, you know, you start starting to wonder, it's like, well, am I, am I doing this wrong? Or he's watching everything that I do. And then what happens? The bad decision bug starts up. And so everything you do looks like a mistake and then it just gets worse. And then you look like you're a freaking retard. You don't know what the hell you're doing anymore. Versus if you just like you said, Michael, if you let me do my job the way I've been doing it for the last 10, 15, 18 years, whatever it is, leave me alone. I'm fine. You know, but if you're going to be freaking up, you know, with the microscope around me all the time, I, how can you expect me to perform? And then not only that, this is where I got into it with my one of my first bosses on the net team back in the day was that um, I told him straight to his face. I said, you know, Rob, my buddy, I said, you're going to get me killed because the first thing I'm thinking about is how I'm going to get jammed up if I make a mistake in your eyes, you know? And I said, we've, we've got a choice here. Either you're going to kick me off the team or you got to let me do what I do, you know? And if you let me do what I do, I promise you I'll get you the numbers that you need safely without, you know, getting anybody hurt. So, and that's how it ended up being. So. And I've noticed something the the ones that critique the most are usually the ones that do the less. <laughs> they May or may not be a lot of people that's heard this term. Um, you don't have to be retirement age to be that, but you know, basically means you're doing the job, but you're there for a paycheck. You're just riding it out until you can retire. And those are usually the ones that want to critique you the most when they're not even willing to do their own job. Yeah. Well, on top of that, you know, we've addressed this. Both of you, I've addressed this almost with everyone that I've had on this show, is the very fact, and I really didn't even really look at it in that context until, Chris, you brought it up in one of our very first broadcasts about how our superiors and our supervisors are there because of test-taking abilities. They might have been on the force for three fucking months, don't even have the experience that we, and they're telling us what to do. Like John just said, it's like, you know, it's like they don't even know about the job and they're trying to tell you what to do. It's the, and, and that's sad. And I mean, that, that policy really does need to change that, you know, there, there has to be a criteria outside of a test taking ability of somebody that's been out there that's done it, that's earned their stripes, truly earned their stripes before they can, you know, be a superior to kind of instruct you on, you know, the way that you're doing your job that you were hired to do that you've been doing for 10 fucking years. Here they are on the four, six months. Like, 
Well, you know, Chris, the way we could straighten this up and get you more efficient. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's so stupid. You know, hey, his handwriting's better, so he must be better at this job. He must know more. Where did you get this idea that that's what you need to hire for? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, with my agency, I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love my agency. They're great. All the way up pretty much till the end. My boss, that's a whole nother story. But, um, you know, when I was, I used to joke about it all the time. It's like, all you got to do is basically one tactical scenario. You get that right. And then you take your written test. And if you guess right, 50% of the time you're in, you know, and that's all you got to do. You got to do just guess half of the questions right. And then if you get the other half right, you're a freaking supervisor. It's like, uh, how does this work? You know, you go through like eight hours of leadership school and then 40 hours of um, supervisor school, which is not the same thing. People think it's the same thing, but it is not the same thing. And the big joke of my agency was, well, you know, when you go to supervisor school, plan on coming out without a spine because that's what they do. They take your spine away in, in that school. <laughs> and I've seen it so many times. I can't even tell you. So. Uh, it's unfortunate, but I mean, unfortunately, I mean, I do, I do kind of get that on some level because again, we're not, we're not flipping burgers and these kinds of things. So there is a lot of danger in making contact with people and we need to be covered across the board, of course, cause we don't want to be sued for every, every little thing. So I understand the bosses and because they're in charge now, and this is why I never promoted cause I didn't want 10 Chris Hoyers working for me. I knew better, you know, cause it's another pursuit. It's another use of force. It's another whatever all day long. And I've heard the argument that, yeah, but you're, you're a good paper generator, but you know, it's just a matter of time before something goes wrong and you've got so many guys that are out there getting into stuff. And it's like, man, I don't, I don't want that liability on me, man. No, thanks. I'll just take care of myself. I don't need to wipe 10 noses, man. So. Yeah. There, there was a, a different scenario that me and Michael had talked about. Uh, had to do with me trying to help a guy uh, change a tire where the jack had actually slipped out. And luckily, you know, it, it only caught part of his foot enough not to hurt him. The funny part about me and Michael is, you know, I'm freaking out. Oh, shit, this, this tire's just landing on this guy's foot. And he, as calmly as he can be, well, it's on my foot, boys. <laughs> but I, I couldn't help, you know, laugh about that. But, you know, that can come down to, hey, you know, you were changing this guy's tire. The jack fell off. He could have got hurt. Don't do it anymore. Well, I, I get what you're saying, but when I don't go help this person change their tire on the highway and they get hit by a car and get killed, you know, how does that come back on me? Not yeah. even, you know, legally, but me having to deal with it personally in my own life that I could have helped this person, but I didn't. So, you know, now they're dead. Yeah. Well, I mean, you you got a duty to act, right? I mean, that's got what we well, we do, you know, I mean, so I don't want that on my conference either, you know, so. Yeah, but see, on top of that as well, too, like with civilian sector, you know, fails to realize a lot of time. And Chris, you and I have talked about it. You know, John and I had a pretty in-depth talk about it in our last broadcast about the, you can go to one situation. You can have one encounter. You go to one call. There is a plethora of possibilities of what can happen on every call. It could be a, a simple call. You don't know if that person is armed. You don't know, you know, what's going on, you, you know, and, you know, dispatch and things like that can only provide you information of what's going on, you know, and, 
you know, John and I were talking about the different things as far as, you know, when, when somebody's sitting there, you know, in their hands and stuff like that, they can be like this, you know, and spin around. They have a knife in their hand, you know, and it's just you don't know the situations until you're there, you know. So regardless of what policy, what you read in the book on, hey, this is how you handle a situation, you know, a person's mindset the person's environment, the demographics, the culture, which is not spoken about very often. You know, there's so many different factors that get played in there, regardless of how many pages of the book you read, that scenario, that one scenario you go to, could be 15 different outcomes, you know, dependent upon culture, environment, you know, the way we approach the subjects and everything else. So, Well, I'll tell you, man, my opinion on that is that comes back to every single thing that I, that I base my career on is all training, you know, and very much like if you guys are fans of fighter pilots, you know, they go through red flag um, up in Nevada and they do, I think it's 10 combat missions before they ever get deployed live. And that increases their chances of survival by, well, it's like a thousand percent or some crazy high number like that. There's no difference between that and the law enforcement community. If you're running guys through tactical simulators or, you know, like what I always like to do is play the what if game over and over and over again. You know, when you get to that scenario, um, if you've already played in your mind 20 different outcomes or 20 different possibilities, especially as a win, very, very important to say it that way. Um, that's huge because now if you've already gone through four or five different possible outcomes and then you say, well, that's that doesn't really fit. We're going to go with this one. And then you're already ahead of the curve. I mean, that's that's huge in my opinion. So if you do that enough, um, there's really, I mean, let's face it. I mean, there's so many things that I got. I mean, I remember when I was sitting in dispatch when I was in the academy and thinking it was a it was an alarm call, and I'm sitting in the chair, you know, brand spanking new, not even not even on the street yet, and I'm panicking, going, "Oh my god, I wouldn't have any idea how to handle this call." Well, dude, it's a freaking alarm call. You, you show up, you talk to the person, and you go ten eight. What's the big deal? And that's, I mean, it doesn't really get any more simple than that. But then you start getting into these complex calls where you, I mean, you get shoved right into the mix, man, freaking day one. I mean, I don't know if, John, you don't know this story yet, but my very first call solo was an illegal parking call. My second call was an armed robbery. <laughs> it's like, oh, shit, here we go. There's the beginning of my career right here. So and I never stopped after that. So, um, like I said, I think you just you keep on doing all that training over and over and over again. I think that definitely helps curve that, you know, that failure rate, if you will. So, and kind of what Troy just said right there about the practical application differs from most policies. Train as you fight and fight as you train. I mean, that, that couldn't be any more on point, you know, what I mean, because that's the reality of it. It's just, yeah, it seems practical when you read the book and you, you do that training, but unless until you're in that moment, it's the. Yeah, you can use what you were trained for, but, you know, now it's a new fight. You fight as you train, you know, and you train yourself as you did, Chris, you know, like our very first one with Chris Gray Gordon, and we were talking about that to where, you know, read as you for the next one, you know, because it's not going to be if it's the next one, there's going to be another incident, you know, so as we take that practical application and we assert it to ourselves and we fight the way that we fight in order to, as John put it, to where, you know, we kind of de-escalated and, you know, discharge everything, you know, we learn that for the next time and we're more ready the next time, so. And 
I think, well, I know there's a, a very happy medium between your, your training and your mindset. You can't have somebody you know, retired on duty going to an alarm call thinking that this is nothing. You know, seeing some kind of signs that might be a break-in, this is nothing. I go to alarm calls all the time. I haven't, you know, ever had somebody breaking in. This is minor. And you can't also have, you know, a rookie going to an alarm call and saying, oh, shit, there's a scratch on the door. Somebody's in here, you know, and kicking in the door to go find them. You've got to train for that. Well, I'll take it a step further than that, too. I mean, I, I, I'm kind of harping on all the bad stuff. But, I mean, the, the shit that we're allowed to do, dude, it is, it's fun. I mean, it's freaking awesome. I mean, that's when I joke about, you know, driving fast. I want carrying a gun and all that kind of stuff. I mean – where do you get to do the kind of stuff that we get to do getting paid for it? And then even without all that, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's dangerous and everything else. Of course, we all know that that's why we're wearing bulletproof vests and so forth. But, you know, even beyond just the actual work itself, I mean, how many, how many friends have you made on the department that you talk to on a regular basis, you know, and that camaraderie and, and that brotherhood that is just, I mean, it's, it's tangible. I mean, it really is. I mean, all those things that go along with, with that career. I mean, every time I'd put on my uniform man, I was just like, God, I can't believe that I'm actually able to wear this thing. So I always felt very, very privileged to be in that spot. And maybe that was, I mean, a little far-fetched, maybe naive based, who knows, but I always kind of felt that huge pride. And I'm like, man, look, you know, kind of my chest kind of thing, you know, it was awesome. It was great. So I love that part. So. But it's not, it, that's not far-fetched though, Chris, because it's the, it's the same thing with law enforcement, first responders, military, you know, because a lot of us, when we join military, when we go into law enforcement, it is for specifically, you know, outside of the, you know, driving as fast as we want to, the cops and robbers, you know, everything else, it is that family that we're now, you know, being sworn into, you know, and that's why a lot of times upon retirement, a lot of brothers and sisters find it hard to leave military. They find it hard to leave law enforcement or whatever the case, any kind of first responder, because it's that you're, you're almost leaving a family because no matter how much somebody says that they're still going to be there for you. I mean, let's face it. We lose contact with those that, because our daily lives aren't relatable anymore. You know, it's like, you know, we're no longer in the game. So it's like, Oh, you don't even know what I faced today. You know, and it does kind of make it hard when you step out. So it's the, you're not far-fetched at all. I mean, everybody going is like, yeah, hey, I'm a part of this. You know, it's it's a big change well, in life, especially the stepping out part. Yeah, I was going to – I know we talked about this like last time on there on the show, but, uh, you know, something I realized when I went back to the precinct for the first couple of times and have, have breakfast with the guys like we did every week, you know, um, God bless their souls, but they don't want to hear how great life is on the outside, you know, and, you know, Believe me when I tell you, for the guys that are still on, there is life after the PD. Believe me when I tell you. I mean, I'm living the best life I've ever had now, three and a half years retired. But I did miss that thing because, you know, I mean, just walking up on a car together or getting ready to hit a door or whatever it is, you look in your partner's eyes, you don't get that anywhere else. You don't, you know, um, as much as I love my girlfriend, she's not going to understand that part of what I do or of that part yep. of my life. You know what I mean? And when you when you lose that, that is a big thing that you lose. Um, but then, obviously, if you're smart, you move on to something bigger and better, like I did. Thank God, miraculously, somehow I don't know how that happened. Um, yeah. That's um, 
Chris, I, I, I talked to my, uh, Michael about it. You don't, you don't know this, but uh, my dad, he had, you know, 25 years, you can retire. Um, you know, 25 years comes, you better get out of my way. Cause if you're between me and the door, I'm running your ass over, <laughs> you know, and he's still there. I kicked him out. I got hired on and he had to retire. Yeah. Um, bigger and better things. He got remarried. Now he's busier now than ever, but, uh, Something I wanted to kind of off subject, but you mentioned something, and it's just something I I just want to say. But uh, he had told me, you know, some of his guys didn't want to wear the vest, which especially back then a lot of people don't. Um, you know, why don't you wear your vest? Well, if it's my time to go, it's my time to go. Okay, well, leave your gun at home. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great point, man. I'll take it a step further, man. I had a guy that used to work with, good dude. His dad was one of the assistant chiefs for years. And I, I guilted him into it. I said, look, man, you know, I love you as a brother, but you get freaking shot in the chest. I got to freaking deal with your ass now. If you're wearing your vest, you know, um, one of my one of the most tragic stories ever. One of our guys in, in my agency, um, that exact situation, man, he wasn't wearing one. They're chasing out a homicide suspect. And the freaking golden BB, man. It was, I think it was, I don't remember how far it was, like 30-some-odd yards away. The guy just cranks off one round and freaking ten rings him, you know, and he had his vest hanging on the back of his seat, you know. And it's like, it wasn't because he wasn't tactical. He wasn't He wasn't that guy at all. But he got so wrapped up in the, into the chase that he just didn't think to put it on in time. And by the time it was all said and done, it was just too late. But that's just a different kind of situation versus guys that just flat out don't wear it. And I'm like, dude, if you take a round, you know, and then I've got to freaking try to save your ass because you're not wearing a vest. That's fucking stupid. I'm sorry, but that's stupid. So. Yeah, and it, it blows my mind. I've actually heard somebody say before, you know, well, I'll put it on if I need it. Well, if you know you need it, it's, it's too late. And oh, it's, too late. Oh, it's like putting your seatbelt on. It ain't going to happen. Yeah, you know, when you're flying through the windshield. <laughs> exactly right, yeah. yeah. But uh, it, it sounds weird. You know, I was... <laughs> But if I don't wear one on the street, I don't feel right. And it sounds weird to say, I guess maybe just the way it feels, it's almost like a a comfort blanket to me. You know, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. the views that I have on this call, you know, maybe different if I don't have this on. It's just the way it makes me feel secure to, to handle calls, I guess, more confidently sometimes. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, I, I equated it to because I like to ride motorcycles. And when I throw on a t-shirt and jeans and I get out on the bike and I'm like, God, I feel naked. When I wear it all my gear, I just feel like, yeah, I'm 10 feet tall and I can pretty much handle anything, which of course I know better than that. But man, I always felt much more confident in my abilities and safer. I mean, I never even, I mean, I wore my vest even to court just to go down to court because I just felt like that's part of the uniform. That's just the way it is. I just, I'm, I could never not wear it, you know. It's like oh, on top of that, you know, kind of going into, you know, why I love the title of your book so much, Chris, about the when that day comes. You know, I, you and I had that discussion before about how, you know, a lot of the brothers and sisters, you know, sometimes it's because we've done nothing but traffic stop, traffic stop, traffic stop. We become complacent in our jobs to where we feel that that vest isn't important. We feel that you know our sidearm isn't important. But then all of a sudden we do do that one traffic stop to where, you know, it is somebody that's unlicensed. It's somebody with a stolen car or, or whatever the case may be. 
And here we are just walking up because we've been so complacent from the previous stops we've made for our whole career. And, you know, they're just sitting there in their car with their firearm aimed at the window, you know, waiting for us to walk up. And it's just, you can't have that mindset. Well, Hey, I'll be fine. I mean, I'll, I'll put it on after I get shot. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, I'm, I had a soccer wreck. Um, a good while back, I had a motorcycle wreck. I had I drove a sport box, and I had uh, racing leathers on. You know, and when I wrecked, I skidded down the road. It didn't hurt. Me. I had the racing leathers, but when I left the house that day and put them on, I didn't put them on thinking I'm going to need them today. Yeah, uh, to say that you prepare for the slide, not the ride, you know, so, or whatever. So, uh, by the way, I got to throw out a shout to. Uh, Lindsay and Troy, man, love the comments. Lindsay, of course, you know, got to see her up in Vegas this past weekend, man. It was, if you guys haven't been to the Wounded Blue, obviously, this was first first year they ever had it, but unbelievable, man. I mean, I hope that it just it goes 10 times bigger next year because it was probably the greatest thing I've ever done in my career as far as conferences go, so, but. And I didn't get paid to say that. Are, are, you, are, are you going to the uh, first first responder symposium March of next year? I uh, have not heard about that one yet, so probably not. Unless I get invited. So. I'll, I'll, I'll send you the link over. It's only $175 for the, the full uh, for the full show. It's like $100 if you just want to go for one day. But it's just, you know, to raise the awareness and everything else for uh, first responders and everything else would be great. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll send you the link over if, you know, need be. John, if you want to go as well, too. Yeah, I'm down, man. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely be interesting. Um, Michael, Chris, I hate to, but I got to jump off here. I got to get ready for my my work tomorrow. But uh, I'm definitely interested in, in coming back on whenever whenever you're on, Chris, and, and definitely send me a, a copy of that book. I'd I'd love to read it. Cool. Thanks, man. Thanks. Yeah, you'll. Uh, sounds like you know I have pretty much the same mindset. So you'll you'll be laughing. Uh, there are some things in there that are. Probably gonna make you fall down crying too, but that's you know that's just real life, man. That's why I wrote it that way. So, but hey, uh, roller coaster, you gotta have ups and downs. Ah, amen, amen. So, so uh, yeah, yeah, Michael, if you want to keep going, um, John, I'd love to. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we we can. If you want to hit another chapter, or what do you yeah, want to do? You want to just converse? Wanna... You want to hit another chapter? Or... Yeah, I'm down for that. So. Hey, John, hey, thank, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I mean, I'd like to kind of – like to bring a lot more brothers and sisters on to join in this conversation with Chris because, I mean, the, you know, I don't know if I've told you or not, but, you know, Chris actually goes inside different agencies and does the different training, uses the shock value, you know, which is included inside this book and everything else as well, too, to kind of prepare individuals just like the title says, you know, preparing for the fight and everything else too. And, you know, trying to collaborate and make all this happen and ask questions, toss back and forth because everything that we discuss is relatable to everybody in law enforcement, military, first responders, everything else as well too. So I appreciate you joining us, John, and I look forward to speaking to you again. And I'll give you a shout here later on for what we spoke about earlier as well. Stay safe and stay blessed in all things, brother. Good to meet you, man. I know. Take care. All right, so what do you think, man? Pick up chapter three.
Yeah, I think people are gonna be trying to hear my voice after that long, man. He's like, yeah, get this guy out the air, man. See, Natalie's in the back bedroom playing the same exact thing. So, yeah, she'll be she'll be sleeping on the couch tonight. So, she 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 puts the cue cards down already. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we'll we'll talk about that. So, no. all right. So, chapter three. Yes, sir. Oh, sp- oh speaking of that, if uh, you know, kind of off note. So, because I'm I'm writing a book called Truth. You know, it's kind of helping people relate to different things as far as the kind of finding themselves and where they go. If if you could share that with her or ask her to look over that, and because I'll probably employ her. No, probably I'll I want to employ her to kind of edit the book and. I'll send out the manuscript, kind of let her breeze through it if she'd be interested. And if she had time, because I know she has a pretty busy schedule and stuff like that too. So, well, if she does. I'm going to do what she did. Take you know, take twenty percent off the top. So, like, hey, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm not worried. You, you earned it. <laughs> uh, referral referral fee. Um, <laughs> obviously, she's a, she's a rock star, man. She made this thing so so easy for everybody, you know, especially me. Um, well, you know what's yeah, important though is is like I mean. You know, you wrote the book with all of your emotion, all of your feeling, all of your knowledge, all of your training and everything. She made it so adaptable for the civilian sector, for every first responder, not just law enforcement. You know, even though your book is about the law enforcement side of everything else, it's so relatable to everyone else. You know, to law enforcement, their family, you know, readying their children of things to look out for and things like that. It's it's a it's a gold mine for everybody and you know in the way, the way that she put that together with your words and everything else it made it relatable to civilian sector first responders military everyone as a whole yeah thanks man thanks and, you know it, it wasn't planned for me at least i mean this was just me someone studied my ideas down on paper and next thing you know it turned into something and um, and you just said, hey, just get it out there. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I swear, man, by the time we got done with all the editing and all the updates and everything else, man, I was I was done. Get this thing out of my face, man. I swear I'm not going to touch this thing again. <laughs> you know, and then when it came in the mail, like I told you before, I came in the mail. I couldn't believe it, man, when I pulled it out of the box and it was actually something in my hand. You know, this is where I endorse everybody else to write their story because I guarantee you've got a story. And even if you don't publish it, it's man, I'm telling you, she says it over and over that this thing saved my life. And I, I don't think that she's wrong by any means on that. Um, Cause there are so many things that I talk about that I kind of had forgotten about. And then I kind of brought back the light on my own. Now, some were bad. Yeah, true. Very true. But most were really good. And most were things that I had to release from my own, my own bad stuff, if you will. You know what I mean? And so, getting that stuff out on paper even for i mean for the first year writing this thing this thing was 100 percent just for me purely selfishness and that wasn't really by design but as i'm writing and writing and writing and more and more um i started to realize that man this is this is all for me and then not long after that i started sending it out to all my friends you know which i got you know scolded for time and time again after a while so but you know what though i mean the the feedback that you've received and the feedback that others probably want to provide to you, but just don't have that outlet or that avenue to provide you that feedback. It also, I'm, I'm, and I'm sure that it relates to you to where just like anybody else that 
you know, says, oh, hey, that happened to you as well, too. I'm not alone. It, it yeah, helps yeah. with that very important aspect of everyone's lives to where there's so many of us that are just stuck thinking that nobody else can relate to or that, you know, I'm alone. You know, I can pick this book up and be like, oh, my God, this is shit. <laughs> well, maybe that's it's not funny. just me. Yeah. And that's that's huge for me because, you know, what I want from this for people that read it is to say, you know what, this guy is full of shit or, you know, I understand or I've been there and probably greater than any other thing. I just want some awareness in other people's lives and go, yeah, you know what, take a step back and go, man, you know, I can, I can understand part of that or I can relate to some of that and take it to the next level, whatever that is, you know, um, it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be a life-saving thing. It can just be something where it's a, I mean, it's something simple as tactical, you know, it's like, well, I didn't like the way you did that. So I'm going to, I'm going to try it my way and just adapt a little bit kind of a thing, which is perfect. I just love that too. So, but all right, I'm going to keep on, uh, keep on reading if you're ready. So always. Oop. All right. See if I can get through this thing. Sir. Okay. So chapter three, the, the strong, silent, what, um, I learned a lot about myself and about self-discipline in the hiring process. Um, uh, most of all, I learned patience. Uh, I had my fair share of life experience. I thought that would help me, and it did, to a point. However, the truth of the matter was, I had no idea what I was facing. They told me, you can come back in six weeks and, six weeks and retake the written exam. I failed the written exam? Yes, you did, by two questions. Some bitch. Okay, I really want to do this, right? Keep fighting. Then again, they told me, you can come back in six weeks and retake the physical exam. Damn it. Stupid sit-ups. And so I retested again and again. It was only because of my fierce determination and training that I finally made it. Uh, there was no stopping me now, right? Uh, they told me, we need you here on Thursday at 10 a.m. Yes, sir. I was in the parking lot at 9 o'clock in the morning, sharp. At 10 minutes to 10, I was in the office. I'm sorry, we had an unexpected cancellation. Another guy got your spot. Can you come back at 2 o'clock? Yes, I can. At 1.45, I was back in the office, ready to go. 2 p.m., 2.10 p.m., 2.15 p.m., 2.30 p.m. Uh, Ma'am? Oh, the one behind the counter side. I'm sorry. Can we reschedule for two weeks from Monday? He had to leave. Okay, sure. I really want to do this, right? Keep fighting. Then there was a background check requiring all kinds of information, including every job, residence, traffic ticket, vehicles loaned, dog, friend, relative, and favorite movie. Packet alone took me two weeks to finish. I got through it. Plus, fingerprints, oral board, formal interview, checkup, turn your head and cough, blood work, vision test, dental checkup, KY jelly, psych evaluation, firstborn child, mother's maiden name, brain teasers, a train leaves Denver at 2 p.m. and another leaves Chicago at 6 p.m., and the all-important non-admissible polygraph test. Okay. I admit, I admit once I got through all that mess, I, I had a newfound confidence I was good to go. Just give me my badge and gun and set me free, as if. So day one at the academy, keep your heads up and your mouth shut. Classroom A, don't you dare be late and don't even think about asking how to find it. Find a seat and remain silent. Like church mice, our recruit class waited no less than 30 minutes. I lost track of time, but before long, we all got the life scared out of us. He was not a big man. He was fit, very fit and somewhat soft-spoken. I did not know who kicked in the door, but uh, holy Christ, I thought they were coming after me. I'm sure my 45 other recruit buddies all felt the same as we scrambled to our feet to the command at the command of our class sergeant. 
and a staff of recruit training officers. I was thinking to myself, you know, that door is probably expensive. You might just give somebody a heart attack, which was me. <laughs> I was ready to fall over. Um, it did not take me long to realize that these folks were going to harass us for all it was worth, perhaps for their amusement. It wouldn't hit me till a few years later that this was a process. I could already hear Joe Citizen screaming at me. I pay your salary. You're supposed to protect and serve me. It is your job to get shot at, screamed at, and spit on, so suck it up. Have you any idea the crap I had to endure just to wear this uniform? The more I think about it, the more I think I should have gone back to the back and thanked the training staff who gave me such a hard time. They mentally prepared me for the street, and I didn't even realize it. Sneaky little dudes. The street was easy, or at least I thought it was. My first major incident was the stuff of great storytelling. The biggest lessons were attention to detail, courage, and physical willingness. Physical preparedness in and of itself can be a major issue. However, I believe the biggest building block of all when it comes to law enforcement is mental preparedness. The fact is that this profession is made up of the strong, silent type, and what we don't talk about can hurt us. So, chapter three. So, um, you know, and, and, and one of the things that that you were kind of talking about, about the, the mental toughness and preparedness, about how, you know, it, it may seem that they're just trying to beat you down, but, you know, so the A Admiral uh, Graven, when he was giving his spiel and talking about SEAL training and everything else, about how, you know, they beat you down, they beat you down, they beat you down. It's not to beat you down. It's to prepare you physically, mentally, and things like that, to, to get the ones out of the way that are going to be in the way if you let them progress and, and move forward and everything else is going too. You know, and a lot yeah. of individuals don't realize, you know, that that magnitude of everything you go through just to get in there. You know, it's kind of like, oh, I just signed an application. Yeah, then you got the plus whole page of everything else, you know. And it's, oh, yeah. So, well, for, uh, for first-generation first responders like I was or guys that haven't gone through the military first and then joined the law enforcement community. These are things you, if you're smart enough to realize makes sense. But like me, I was freaking, well, I'd like to say fat, dumb and happy, but I really wasn't back then. I was like 135 pounds when I joined up, but, um, but I didn't have any idea about this kind of stuff. I thought I'm just going to go out there and learn how to do some shit and go hit the street and be done. You know, I didn't realize there was a, a mental, you know, preparation game to this whole thing. I was like, okay, you know, but then, like I said, that first time I started getting screamed at, I realized I'm like, of all the shit that I went through just to get here, dude, this is easy, man. So <laughs> it was great. Well, it's up like, so like with Troy's comment, you know, even if it helps, you know, less than a handful of people, it's worth all the time that you put into it. Hmm. You know, I, I know Troy was, you know, talking about the writing of your book, but it's the same thing when we, you know, give our service, whether it's, you know, military, law enforcement as a first responder, you know, sometimes we don't really see the appreciation or sometimes we second guess ourselves if we're given enough. But it's it is that instance to where, you know, as we serve, you know, it, as long as we're able to benefit at least one individual, I mean, that's our that's our career in a nutshell. I mean, if if one life is better today because of my service, you know, it's the, you know, we don't have to be superstars. You know, we go in there because we want to protect, serve, have the integrity and everything else. So as long as that, you know, that one person in our whole career has a better life or is in a better position, which it, it's an understatement because, I mean, every day that we go out there and experience the different things, it's, 
we're impacting people on a large scale. I mean, there's going to be such a ripple effect on everything that is being done, you know, especially with the writing of your book. I mean, the ripple effect that's going to transpire because of an individual reading, reading your book. And on top of that, you going into the agencies and providing them that shock value or, you know, just that instruction. I mean, the ripple effect that you're creating and that so many other brothers and sisters are creating, whether it be in law enforcement, military, first responders, it, it goes on such a larger scale than sometimes we understand because society today, they don't take the time to say, Officer Hoyer, thank you for your service or anybody. You know what I mean? And, and a lot of times it's so easy to feel unappreciated or, hey, is what I'm doing even noticed? Is what I'm doing even worth it? You know, so again, commend, commend and commend and commend you over and over again. Ah, thanks, man. Well, um, two things I want to touch on with that. So I think that um, anybody who decides to don that uniform, they are superstars, you know, because of what we have to do to endure you know, a long career or even again, just to get hired on as a freaking massive pain in the ass, you know, and that's just the beginning. And then you got to go through all the Academy BS. And then once you finally, you, you think you've reached that goal you're like, yep, cool. Now I'm good to go. And then you start FTO and then you realize you don't know anything. And you, all that shit that you learned from the Academy, I'll forget all that. They're going to get you killed. All right. So now you're starting fresh away all over again. And then, then you think, okay, you graduate FTO, you rock and roll. And, you know, like I wrote it in the, in the book, you know, I'm finally free of all this kind of stuff I just talked about. And you hit the gate and you wait for the gate to open. And then you're like, OK, I'm now the cops. What the hell do I do? <laughs> what do I do with myself? You know, and then, you know, and if you're lucky enough to be, uh, you know, free of, of drama on your first day, unlike me, then it's great. You know, um, but then uh, the other half of that is that acknowledgement that, you know, God bless her, man, Natalie doing her love notes thing. I mean, she brought, I don't know how many she brought to Vegas with us. And I keep harping on Vegas cause I, I can't say enough about it, man. It was just the greatest thing ever. But, uh, every, every single person that we made contact with that was either law enforcement related military, a spouse or whatever it was, she's handing out love notes to these guys. And damn it, she got better reactions from her notes than I did from giving people the books. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just for the viewers at home, you know, Chris and Nat, they weren't out in Vegas at the Golden Nugget, you know, spinning the wheels. It was the it was the wounded. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, if, if you want to, like, you know, let, let the viewers know, like, what the whole Vegas thing is so they don't get it misconstrued like you were just out there pulling the slots. Yeah, so um, I got to throw a plug out to uh, the guys from the Eye Detective show. Um, they got a show kind of similar to yours, but they, they've got a lot of videos and they've got different segments where they talk to different folks and uh, choir practice. But one of the main things that they do, um, Chris DiPerno is actually the, the main host of the show. He's He kind of runs everything and then he brings on guys and guest speakers and so forth. But their main guy that does the news is Randy Sutton. And for guys that don't know who Randy Sutton is, Randy is a... Uh, 34-year retired Las Vegas Metro PD um, lieutenant. And if you recognize the name, maybe it's because the movie Casino, where he was in the movie um, when 
Sharon Stone is ramming her car in the back of Robert De Niro's Cadillac. Um, they call the cops. Well, Randy is actually there on that scene. And we're in Vegas. And he was talking about how he walked into the, they, they offered him the spot and he walked into the hotel and there's freaking Robert De Niro sitting there. And he's like, Holy shit. Kind of a thing. Anyway, side note to that whole thing. So Randy, uh, having retired from Las Vegas Metro, um, he started this organization called the wounded blue. And it is exactly what it sounds like. What they basically do are um, events for folks that have either been injured in the line of duty or since they've retired and have either um, lost their ability to take care of themselves through their own departments or their benefits have been cut off or what have you. And you hear some of these stories and you're like, how is that even possible? I mean, there's a guy that He's chasing the dude, gets shot in the head with a rifle, survives that, rolls his car several times into a tree, survives that, and then his department not only cuts off his benefits, they fire him. I mean, so this is what Randy's organization does, and they and they come on board, and hopefully Lindsay's still listening because she can talk about this a whole lot better than I am because she's actually an advocate, and a, uh, uh, I'm not sure what the exact title is off the top of my head, but basically she's a... Uh, Peer support. Thank you, Natalie, and some background helping me out here. So, um, and so they've got cue cards, whole... cue cards. Exactly. <laughs> I know, right? So, um, so they've got a whole bunch of folks that do exactly that. They just do peer support stuff, and they are, oh my God. I mean, I did pretty good with not crying in front of everybody that was there, but there were a handful of, of folks that I was just like, oh my God, I, you know, just unbelievable. So the 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 level of people that I met there are just i mean absolutely i mean they they are absolutely heroes i mean it's it's unbelievable so um so we spent basically four days there how and, long has the wounded blue actually held the different events there in vegas this was their first actual major event as far as i understand it but i think um lindsay hopefully if she's still on i think they've been around for four maybe five years now doing their thing and they have, I mean, Randy's all over the news all the time talking about it and, and the stuff that he does. And um, it's not just doing events like this. I mean, they were in, I uh, want to say someplace on the East Coast. I don't remember where, but um, basically helping a, a family fix the foundation of their house. You know, stuff like that, you know, and then just supplying guys with, with needed benefits or, or what have you. And, and whatever they can do to help our, our community, you know, our, our officers are, our injured officers get get the help that they need. It's unbelievable, man. So, and, and that's huge because you see so many of these different organizations that are about the wrong thing. Their mission, their vision sounds great to kind of draw in the masses, but are they really supporting the families of fallen law enforcement? Are they really supporting active law enforcement, first responders, you know, for namesake or for recognition's sake? You know, it's all about them rather than the actual cause that, you know, they're there to support, you know, so it's awesome actually hearing about the organizations that, you know, are actually doing the good deeds and everything else and doing the due diligence, you know, I mean, you know, for example, like the Wounded Warrior Project, you know, every everybody knows about how scandalous that was and how not one of the board members that started the place even served a day in the military or anything else. Like, Oh, Hey, I got a good little ply right here. And you know, yeah, they, they might've taken care of a couple families to, for namesake, but you know, it's just, it's, it's amazing 
you know, seeing the individuals, you know, like Wounded Blue, you know, doing that. Because wasn't the uh, the wife of the founder of uh, uh, Make-A-Wish Foundation at the Wounded Blue event? She was there, and Natalie met her in person, got a photo, and, I mean, it was it was epic, Amazing. Man. Oh, my Amazing. God. I mean, that, I mean, there were, I swear, man, there were so many stories from that weekend that I – my brain is still swirling. If you guys see in the background, my flag, um, I've been carrying that thing everywhere I go for these events. And I have more people sign that flag in four days than I have in the last six months, you know, all these places that have gone and some, some pretty heavy hitters too. I mean, a lot of, a lot of big name guys that were out there. And uh, so, you know, and I think, I don't know what it is, some percentage, some huge percentage of the, the proceeds that they get, I'll go back to the families. You know, and uh, I don't know. This is was this plan, or the folks that that got awards knew this was coming or not. Lindsay, again, she knows probably more about this than I do. But um, so Randy starts calling up some names, and he says, "Okay, well, here's your story." They bring him up on kind of on stage almost, and he tells their story, and then he gives them a plaque, and then another kind of a plaque thing also, and then gives them like the the wounded blue version of a purple heart. And I mean, it was like, Holy cow, man, not a dry eye in the house. And I mean, thank God they didn't call me up there. I mean, I'm not injured um, miraculously, but um, had they called me up there, I would have, I would have been a freaking blubbering mess. <laughs> I would have never survived it, man. And awesome. So I don't know how those guys made it through that stuff. It was absolutely unbelievable. So. And, and uh, so, you know, Troy just said, see the signatures very cool. I'm pretty sure he's talking about the flag behind you. Yeah. So did you take that flag with you to Vegas? Or is that something I, that or how did how did you tell us the story about that? Well, I was because, uh, of course, we all get on Amazon from time to time. Right. And uh, so I was doing our second email or something and they had there was a, a few Back, I think when Amazon was still mostly supporting us, which I don't know if they are now today, tomorrow it could be different. But long story short, they had some stuff on there. So I clicked on one of these things and they had this, what I being this Betsy Ross blue line flag. I'm like, God, it's like the coolest thing ever. So I ordered one and I wish I could remember the name of the company because I'd love to endorse them, but I just can't off the top of my head. Um, I can't even remember what peer support is right now, but whatever. <laughs> so if I think about it, I'll throw, I'll throw it in the comments. But Anyway, so I ordered this flag, and it's been hanging on my wall for, I don't know how long, a year, maybe something like that. And I just got this this wild hair. Just, um, we're in Virginia for the, the first time I actually had this idea, I don't know, several months ago, six months ago, something like that. Um, and decided, hey, maybe I can just have people to start signing it just as acknowledgement that, you know, they were there, I was there. Um kind of make it like a just like a, a shadow box almost if nothing else you know and now it's i mean let's see if i can uh, get a little bit more close-up of it but um it's it's completely full pretty much from top to bottom all the way around with i mean some of my heroes um one guy from my agency and other guys um, like Sheriff Lamb from Arizona, who's super popular. Um, Kevin Gilmartin, of course, Randy. Matthew Sutton. Lamb. Uh, Mark Lamb. Mark. Mark. Mark Lamb. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, I had everyone that I could 
that I could muster to grab it from me from the the Wounded Blue peer support group. They all came on board and signed it as well. Um, I was actually, it was a really strange situation. I was actually able to get up on stage and uh, do a toast and kind of mention it again. So I think even more people came over and signed it after that. And it was, it was just unbelievable. So um, that's one of those things where they were, um, so Bob Bemis, he's another guy from the Wounded Blue. Um, he made mention of wanting me to give it up so they could auction it. I'm like, no freaking way, man. That thing is as selfish as it is. That's mine, dude. No way. You're not getting it. So you better, you know, because I know, I mean, either way, the money's going back to the Wounded Blue anyway. So, um, so I'm, I may try to do another one. I've got another flag. It's not a Betsy Ross flag, but I have another one that I can uh, start this all over again. And very, very, very much like the book, which I highly encourage people to write. This was again one of those on that idea. I mean, I highly encourage it, man, because it's it's such a rewarding thing, and it also just generates lots of stories. You know, well, why are you doing this? I have no reason in the world why, just because I think it's fun. And then that just opens up a line of communication, and then he starts trading stories, and next thing you know, you got a friend for life. You know, so yes, sir. And you know, because um, you know, and, and speaking of, it's kind of funny when you said about the them wanting you to auction that off. So I don't know if you, do you know Mike Zanito by any chance? I know the name, yeah. Okay, so you know he he was out in the event. I, I might be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure he was. I think it was in Boston. I think it was in Boston, Massachusetts, that he was out there, and you know they had that big auction out there. You know, and some of the things were you know the, the signature memorabilia and everything else too. And uh, you know he uh, you know he got quite a few items there too. But a lot of it was like the different signatures from everybody, and uh, you know things like that. That you know, as long as it's going back to the cause, and again. You know what I just said before about you know individuals that you know have these causes and how much of you know benefits received is actually going towards you know the individuals that are being promoted with you know their cause. So, yeah. well, this one is definitely. I mean, it's not going anywhere. <laughs> oh my god! I mean, and I mean, they took such good care of us. I mean, it was un unbelievable. I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable. Um, Hopefully next year I'll get a chance to actually speak because they had a whole bunch of um, pretty heavy hitter public speaker guys up there talking and stuff. Um, the original Buck Savage, he was there, you know, got uh, got some pictures with him. He, he got everybody in the world that was there got a book as well, of course, you know. So, um, but uh, yeah, this thing was it was just awesome, man. I can't talk about it enough, you know. And we've been looking forward to this thing for I can't remember when we signed up for it. It's been months and months and months, and we were. You know, chomping at the bit to finally get up there, and then we got there and did our whole thing. It was it was way better than we even ever imagined. It was unreal. So, but. and then uh, I want to I want to go back for just like one second to the uh, uh, to the book we were just reading in regards to the you know you getting there you know at o nine hundred sharp you know stepping in at o nine forty five and being rescheduled and things like that you know a lot of individuals would get frustrated about something like that and get discouraged and you know something so little like that actually does play into that mental preparedness you know what i mean i know you kind of <laughs> described it there in the chapter but you know on a side note you know how much did that really 
play with your mind as far as, you know, you making these efforts to do this? Did you feel, you know, disregarded or did it discourage you at any point? Or did you just know in your mind that you had that commitment that, hey, I don't care. I'm going to I'm going to make this happen. Well, I was I was so naive about what I was actually getting myself into back in the day that it wouldn't have mattered if they freaking, you know, set my pants on fire and told me to run around the block four times. I would have still done that, you know, because um, there was, you know, I had made the decision that there was absolutely nothing that was going to stop me. And, you know, no matter what it was, I was going to continue to fight through. And just like with the, the stupid written exam, you know, I can't tell you how many times I know guys personally that they go down there and take the written exam, they fail it, and then they give up. Well, dude, you can't just freaking quit. I mean, that's, you know, you, you can't be expected, especially as a first-generation guy, to go in there and just smoke this thing. And then same thing with the, you know, I failed the physical, I don't know how many, 5, 10, 18 times because of sit-ups. I could just never do sit-ups. Um, when I finally was able to do them, I only, I only passed the sit-ups by two, which, you know, fine, whatever. But I never, I never gave up. I kept saying, you know what, I'm going to just train harder and train harder and train harder. And so I finally made it through that. And then I never, during the hiring process, I never got discouraged, not ever once. And I think we may have talked about this. I reached out to my, uh, as it turned out, so we're talking about 1996 when I started training, right? And so now fast forward however many years ago that was, um, this this year earlier, I reached out to my background investigator just out of the blue, and uh, he said that I was actually one of the easiest guys that he ever hired. I'm like, I, I can't possibly see that, man. I thought I was a freaking disaster because I didn't know anything, you know. And uh, he knew, you know, he knew there was something special. That's what those are his words. He goes, I knew there was something special about you back in the day that you were, you were a fighter and you were going to keep on going and there was nothing else going to stop you. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I wasn't arrogant. I mean, I'm. I, it was just one of those things where I, I, I really, really, really want to do this. And I think I'm going to be really good at this particular career. So I'm going to keep fighting forward and then, you know, just made it happen. So, and even though I had some, well, I won very, very significant setback in the academy. That didn't stop me either. <laughs> so. But I, I don't think it's anything about being arrogant or anything like that, Chris. You know, it's that that just proved your passion about what you wanted for yourself, what you wanted for others and everything else, too. You know what I mean? And again, that's just why we're having this conversation now. It's why your book is, you know, so much needed as a read and everything else, too, because, you know, it's that mindset you know, again, going back to like the beginning of this conversation when John was on here in regard to the, is this something that you really want to do? You know, well, and you know, I got to, I got to say, that's why I get really passionate about guys that, you know, they make it through all that bullshit. They make it through the academy and training and everything else. And then they decide that, well, four or five years into it, they, they realize that it's not really for them, you know? And so when I hear that, I'm like, oh my God, you have no idea how, fortunate and how privileged you are to be where you are and to give it up for somebody else because you don't get along with the brass or you know you got questioned about your your tactics or whatever it's like are you doing it for them or are you doing it for you because you know i mean for me it was always 
Dude, I, I just feel like from, from my upbringing, I was one of those guys that I, I never felt like I had a chance. And to be given that chance, man, I, I took it all the way to the max, man, all the way to my 20 years. And even after I left, I still didn't really want to give it up. And I still, that's a whole other thing. I'm still really not giving up at all now. After being retired for three and a half years, I'm still neck deep in the whole thing, you know. So it's it's almost like eat, sleep, and breathe it, you know. So yes, sir, one hundred percent. Yes, sir. Well, I don't know if it was uh, mental toughness or just you know stupidity or combination. <laughs> of both, but no, I truly did. I had a passion. I still do, man. And I, I mean, I, I still just have a huge affinity for guys that want to do it. And I, I respond to these guys on, on Facebook sometimes. Well, my son wants to be a cop and I'm not going to let him. Well, uh, it's, it's his or her choice or whatever else. And, you know, to, to not venture into this career because things aren't going well. I'm just like, oh, no, don't, don't give it up because... You don't agree with the way things are going. Alert! Alert! Are going bad. You have a message from the dark side. Uh, Alert! Uh oh, you're in trouble. Uh, that was my <laughs> message from the dark side. Oh yeah. So you know, I I highly, I highly encourage guys. You know, do a couple things. You know, do some ride-alongs. Get in there, read some stories, talk to guys. You know, that's the ride-along they need right there, bro. Well, yeah, I mean. <laughs> That's that definitely won't hurt by any stretch of imagination. It may it may direct you and decide that maybe this isn't my career after all, you know. Um, but I mean, doing a lot ride along is great. But here's here's part of my take with that: a lot of those guys that you are going to ride with are going to be one of two things. They're either going to be guys that you get saddled with that don't want you to be there with them because they're like, uh, all right, I got to take this guy, whoever he is or wherever she is, and they they have no interest whatsoever or they're guys that are just trying to recruit you and tell you how great it is. Um, and either one of those may or may not steer you in the right direction. So what I'd like to do is go, go hit up guys on the street unexpectedly. In the, and cause that's when you're pretty much going to get the most honest guys, you know, Hey, what do you guys think of this? Oh, it's bullshit. Ah, whatever else, you know, and you might, and if they are open enough to tell you why that is, you take that on board, you know, and then you talk to somebody else and say, you know, hey, what do you guys think about this? And you might get a whole different answer. So, Well, yeah. and it's important, though, too, like you just said, because, you know, some guys that just want to show their ass or something like that or try to be, you know, top dog with, you know, the, the person there, you know, it, it's important to see the real life that, that comes along with it, you know, and like, like Nick's saying to you, he's still bummed I never got to ride along with you. You know, <laughs> shit like that's important because it's like, you know, individuals like yourself may be the impact that cadets or individuals that aren't even cadets that are thinking about, you know, enlisting need to see, you know, because yeah, it right. isn't even about the the call you respond to. It's that preparedness, that readiness and the, you know, being on alert and, you know, in times on waiting on the next call having a general conversation about different things in ways that, you know, you can't prepare yourself and everything else. So it should be an educational lesson for the individuals as they're sitting there with you, not just, we're going to get a call today because it can be a call all day long because, you know, they can be in training and kind of 
how you were saying earlier about the, you know, all that stuff you read in the books, you know, it's kind of out. I'm not going to say it's out the window, but unless you can like put that real life into there. And uh, you, I don't know if you remember the conversation that Chris Gregorio, you and I had about the, uh, when I made the comment about the scared straight for law enforcement, where, you know, sometimes it really needs to be that shock value that you present so often, you know, yeah. because it's the, you know, are you going to be prepared if, you know, do a what if with them, you know, up to a grocery yeah. store, a business owner and like, okay, so now what, what if a suspect walked in here right now and there was a standoff, you know, what position right now, as we sit, would this be the position right here? Would we go direct them? Would we call for backup and quiz them to see like kind of where their mind's at? And the big, big, big topic that, hey, would you draw a firearm or, you know, taser or use, you know, whatever you have on your utility belt to, you know, subdue that suspect? Yeah, that's that's a great point. And that was a really broad answer. My apologies for that, because that was that was based on who you're going to be riding with. And you made a great point that, yeah, it's not just about who you're, who you're there with, but all the stuff you're going to see as well, which which is huge, of course, because, you know, whoever it is that's carting you around, you know, you may or may not get into something or, you know, if you're, you know, if you want to be like Nick, you know, good luck, careful what you wish for. Cause I remember my first guy, my first ride along his first time too, I ended up getting into a shooting that day. It's like, <laughs> you just never know what you're going to get. So, you know. So I've never experienced, now that you said that, so how is that handled? I'm trying to think of how to word this. So a pre a pre-enlisted cadet. So somebody that's putting their toes in the water, let's just say, and something like that happens. I mean, do we just lock them in the car and keep them there? Or is it a hey, you really want to see how shit goes down? <laughs> Shit's about to go down. You know what I mean? So well, I'd say, I mean, it was funny because most academies, I assume, are probably the same. So my first, when I say ride along, I had, I was actually solo for two years and I had this kid ride with me, a good buddy of mine, and I got in my first shooting. Um, but when I did my very first ride along, I was actually in the academy, still wearing the, the academy garb, which was, <laughs> we all hate the white shirt, the black pants and the tie and all that shit, you know. And he basically told me, he goes, well your only job here tonight is to just observe and learn. Okay, fine, whatever. And so I did, you know, and I was able to get out of the car a couple of times. You made some traffic stops, very, very slow night. Um, but my second ride along, uh, fully geared up, no badge because we hadn't graduated yet, but I was armed, had a gun. And I thought, Oh hell yes, man, I'm going to go out there and save the world. I'm going to freaking do it all. Right. Um, that was, you know, you, I'm sure we'll get to that part of the story where I had to search that guy, you know, and it's like, <laughs> this is the highlight of my ride along. I get to handle another dude's junk, you know, it's like, come on, man. But that was the reality of what we had to do. Uh, even though the guy that I was riding with was like a total freaking sadist. He's like, oh yeah, I can't wait for this kid to <laughs> just be squirming for five minutes searching this dude. Um, but it was a very, very eye opening life lesson for the stuff that we got to face on the street every day, you know? And there was one point where, um, 
we ended up inside of a, it was a closed business and he wanted to just go check it out. And one of the bathroom doors happened to be open. So we went in there and cleared it, you know, and it was, for me, it was like the greatest thing ever. I'm like, Oh my God, this is awesome. You know? Um, and so that was, that was huge for me to be able to say, yeah, you know, now I can, I can feel what it's like to be out there in uniform, getting looked at, getting eyeballed, you know, or whatever it is standing next to a car while he's conducting business. And now my job is to be the cover officer, you know, and when you're brand new, of course, you don't really understand what that means, but you were like super high end alert. I mean, you were like, you see everything, you know? And so, I mean, I could see like freaking ants and shit walking across the sidewalk from 40 yards away. That's how, that's how cute I was back in the day, you know? Um, but, you know, it, it was one of those awareness things that I love to talk about so much where, you know, I saw nothing the first time and saw so much the second time and took that all back on board and realized that, yeah, this is this is something that I can do, you know, so. And, and that's vital. And I'm glad you just constructed that explanation the way that you did, because, you know, just as we're trained to utilize, you know, windows on this side of the street to where I could be looking at this window, but I'm observing a sub a subject on the other side of the street. You know, I mean, it, it's that whole awareness, which is kind of like overlooked, you know, because that's part of the preparing for the fight aspect of it is, hey, are you just watching what's going on or are you watching, you know, the surroundings? What else could possibly go wrong? How else you could possibly be ambushed? You know, because, you know, you're watching their back and you're watching what they're doing. But are you also watching what's coming up behind? Is there any other subjects that they were with or anything like that? And it's kind of a in-the-moment type thing to where that book that they read before they got into your car ride along is going to be fucking tossed out the window <laughs> when fucking you see three other people running towards, you know, your, bro oh, yeah. your brother or your sister trying to handle a subject, you know? So, and especially, and it, what makes this so relevant, Chris, is today's society, today's culture of the civilian sector and their view of law enforcement, right. you know? So now everybody's got their cameras out catching mid glimpse of what's going on. And because of everything drawing a crowd now, because now anytime that, you know, the civilian sector sees a brother or sister, you know, even just questioning a civilian, you know, that in itself presents risk for, you know, all the fellow brothers and sisters in law enforcement, because now there's, you know, a group crowding around and it just, you know, it heightens that because a lot of times that subject sees the crowd coming around thinking that, oh, yeah, hey, now I got it right now. I'm, I'm going to try to, you know, provoke, you know, the officer and it just makes it bad. So it's important that, you know, as you just said about the awareness, you know, you're not supposed to just you know, be aware of the immediate situation. We have to be aware of the surrounding, you know, civilians, the demographics, the environment and everything in general. So I'm, I'm glad you just said it in that context, you know, especially the awareness part, because being aware isn't just looking at the, the here now and what's in front of me, but those ants, as you put it, you know, scattered, you know, 40 yards away. So, yeah. And it's, it's amazing because I mean, you know, talking to Natalie, she's funny because she's like, I, I do ride-alongs all the time. She used to be back in Arizona when we were still there. And you see stuff 
when you're riding with the police that you never see when you're just out in, in the real world, you know, if you will. And it's so funny that, you know, you don't pay attention to the, the regular type of stuff um, when you're not in a patrol car. Because as soon as you put on a uniform and you get in a patrol car, I mean, you're instantly, you know, you're now you're scanning everything, you know, you're 360 degrees as much as you can kind of a thing. And, you know, when our, when we're driving to the grocery store, you're in your perfect little world. You're like, okay, whatever. You're not paying the least bit of attention. Um, and over time it becomes, you know, it goes way beyond second nature. I mean, even now being gone as long as I have, I still see more than I wish I could. I mean, it's like, Oh my God, I wish I could just turn it off from time to time, you know, but, um, today we're walking, we're doing some stuff. We've got some, got a big training thing we're doing at this hotel and there's these long columns going down the sidewalk. We're downtown San Diego and I'm coming around the corner and I'm still thinking on that level of, well, I got to clear my corner. <laughs> you know, it's like, dude, you are so far removed from that. Why are, why are you still thinking that way? You know? And then of course I start role playing on my own and I still do that to this day for obvious reasons, you know, cause I mean, no matter where you are, shit can go wrong well on top of that too and it's one of the things that i always try try to encourage you know brothers and sisters that it's like when we when you have children or even even the spouses or the you know family of you know doing little tests with them as well too to you know, heighten the awareness as well too of you know what to look for like you know why is this guy over here suspicious you know Oh well, he's jittering in his pockets. Or okay, well, why is that? Why does that make him suspicious? Oh well, hey, his, the way he's wearing his clothes, you know, in the environment that he's in, you know, and just it, it benefits us to you know educate everyone on the watch that you know, and that's just like with cops, you know, the, the community oriented policing. It's so vital because you know the civilian sector, you know, knowing certain things of how to stay back or how to be aware themselves, it it's only going to benefit the communities and the environments that, you know, we all live in, you know, and, and, and Troy made a great, great, great point right there about the situational awareness only gets better with training and feedback, you know, going back to the whole ride along thing, to where it's the, oh, okay, Hey, I read it in a book, but now seeing this in real life happens. And then you experiencing it yourself, you know, going into a situation. And as we spoke about earlier, where, Hey, that next instance, I'm going to be more ready now. I'm going to, know that oh shit you know i didn't even think about this guy you know having somebody else in the back seat laying down or anything like that you know so it's always gonna improve our awareness and you know sometimes you know our brothers and sisters they they find out too late you know that prepared part you know what i mean that mental awareness and everything else too because you know one of the things that isn't discussed often enough is that of complacency on the job because of the you know, just handling call, call after call of compliant individuals, you know, not running into an individual that just ain't up for it today, you know? So, you know, that situational awareness is key. It is vital, you know, to keep our, keep ourselves on our toes and aware of all possibilities, not just the one that we're looking at. So, well, you know, going back to the whole family thing, it's, it's great that you brought that up because also, um, because we all know, I mean, us as law enforcement officers, we all know that the bad guys target people that mostly aren't paying attention or that are, 
you know, the week of the herd, if you will, you know what I mean? And so when, you know, you're walking around and you're paying attention and you, and you see everything that's going on around you, you know where you can be, where you should be, where you shouldn't be, these kinds of things. And that's no different than being in uniform because I can tell you, I mean, I can't tell you many times when we'd be out there, you know, a couple of guys deep and there'd be one newer guy that's like, mm, not really sure. And those are the guys that get thumped first, you know, um, where you got a guy. I mean, I, I mean, I'm huge on we're going through this right now with our with our new guys on this, this detail that I'm working on. And, you know, one of the very first speeches I'm going to have with these guys is um, and it is partially my my role to tell them this. Um, you will be dressed sharp. Your uniforms are going to be pressed. Your shoes are going to be shined because if you look like shit. You know, guys are going to take advantage of that and they're not going to, you know, you walk up to a dude and you're, I mean, I've seen this so many times. It just drives me crazy where, you know, you've got freaking food on your microphone, your, your shirt's halfway untucked, your belt keeps <laughs> properly, you know, you can see half of your underbelt, you know, below your freaking your gun belt. I mean, you look like a slob. If I'm approaching you for information or for help or whatever it is, I can't take that seriously, man. I'm not going to apologize for that. If you look like shit, you, you probably got a bad attitude. You know, I got a I got a big problem with that. So square yourself away and look sharp. And chances are, you know, God forbid it's going to be an assaultive kind of a situation. They're going to be less likely to want to mess with you because you're squared away. They're going to be like, well, maybe I shouldn't mess with this dude, you know? Well, it's just so like I, with yeah. the, you know, kind of going back to Admiral McRaven. You know, when he gave that whole speech about, you know, SEAL training to where when it's the, you know, making sure that your full dress uniform, your hat starts, your buckle shine, your shoes are shine, and everybody fails it. And it's right. like people get discouraged. It's like your, your uniform's never going to be perfect. It's no. just, you know, to kind of get you ready for it. But to, to have that mental preparedness that, hey, look, I'm still going to be at my best because, you know, the representation of somebody coming up to you like you and – that's another thing that's kind of out of sight, out of mind to a lot of, you know, brothers and sisters in law enforcement of, you know, the way that they carry themselves, the way that they present themselves, you know, just like in military, stand up straight, stand erect, you know, make yourself presentable. And, you know, you're slouching around like you just said, you got food on your, food on your tie and everything else. And it's like, Ugh. hey, just just for the record, I'm slouching because I'm retired now, so I don't have to do that shit anymore. <laughs> <laughs> So, but no, I mean, you know, to be honest with you, I loved working with guys, especially the military guys that understood the, the dynamic of looking sharp because not only did they look good, but they their attitudes were usually always, well, not always, mostly better than the guys that were like, oh, whatever. And I don't, I really don't want to be around those guys because the first thing that a lot of those guys do is when something big happens or even whatever it is, they they hesitate they're like well do i want to go to this or do i not want can i get over that four foot wall or am i you know out of shape and i don't really care well i mean i've said this before on the show dude don't back me up i don't want you around me because if you can't get yourself over that freaking wall when shit goes bad i can't depend on you to freaking do what you need to do you know um that's just i mean that's a i don't think that's really a shitty attitude to have but it's just one of those things where um, there's, you know, I know we talked about this earlier. We touched on a little bit about they've, they've lowered the standards for physical training. 
it's like, ridiculous. How, how is that possible, man? Come on, you know. And well, we I brought mean, it up before when I was on a show with. Uh, I'm pretty sure you, yeah, you were on there, remember? Because we were talking about the hate mail being directed towards me, yeah. uh, Ray Bashir's with Blue Shield yeah. Tactical, right. and we were talking about it to where I would, you know, because with Ray's training about, you know, I don't, I don't want to try to downgrade the fact of, you know, women in law enforcement, but that is a big, big, big concern across the board in regard to physicality, even in the military and everything else. It's that, you know, they. They are able to do the job, but when it comes to physicality, you know, men and women, you know, when it comes time to that, I mean, especially with individuals that are hyped up on drugs and things like that, where it's, I'm not going to say superhuman strength, but, you know, somebody that's numb to any other kind of methods that we use to subdue them, if your physicality is not there, you're in the wrong fucking field, period. You know what I mean? And it goes back to that complacency as well, too, to where... You know, some individuals just, oh, all I do is just ride along all day long, stuff my face. I got food on my, I got food on my uh, camera, <laughs> you, you know, but it's the, you know, and, and, you know, Troy saying about the, you know, you have to make the first impression play and look the part. It's true because, you know, a lot of people always hound me because I wear like a, a suit and tie every day. And they're like, dude, why do you wear a suit and tie every day? I'm like, because of the different businesses that I run and, you know, representing myself in general, it's you never know who you're going to meet. And, you know, if I'm just looking like some scrub, you know, nobody's going to come up to me for help. Nobody's going to want to address. Or if I'm trying to acknowledge that the organization's there to present help for an individual, they're not going to take me seriously. Yeah, It's the same yeah. thing like you just said with law enforcement, you know. You know, what, what civilian, if they were in need or had a real-life question, would feel comfortable coming up to you like, you know, Officer Hoyer uh, – Hey, never, never mind. You look like you're having a bad day, or like you don't give a shit. Yeah, you know? and you know, I mean, you know as well as I do when you when you're not taking care of yourself, your attitude is going to dip, and then you're not going to want to be dealing with the public. You're going to be like, uh, you know, this guy's coming up talking to me. Why? Why do I need to talk to this guy? And they forget why they're there. You know, very much like my buddy. You know, back in back in Arizona, I think he's. You know he's getting burned out, and I can I can totally respect that. I think he's gotten to the point in his career where he just doesn't have the love for it anymore, and I think he just needs to fix that. And he will hopefully because he's he's rallied before. Um, but when you get to that point where you you just have this don't care attitude, you know it it definitely shows. And I know we talked about this a hundred times about supervision. You know if your boss is allowing that to happen, you know that that's on them as well. You know it's like yeah you know. Maybe you got to pull this guy aside and tell him, hey, man, um, like my old partner, great dude, man, love him to death. Um, he was uh, my buddy in the food truck uh, story, and he's a he's a beast. He's like 6'3", 200 and whatever, 30 pounds of solid muscle. You know, I mean, he cracked me like a freaking walnut anytime he wanted to. But when he came on board and we started riding together, um, he'd have his – regular blue uniform on but his white t-shirt sleeves would be sticking out the bottom of the uniform and i said you know scotty i love you but that's you can't do that shit he's like what do you mean i go well first of all imagine your class sergeant in in the academy would he allow that to go down i said you know i'm gonna say it again i love you but you look like shit i said so fucking fix that you know and he's like okay and just one of those things he's never thought about 
You know, that's just that's just one of my personal pet peeves that I just can't stand. I'm like, no, it doesn't work that way. So, but but on top of that, like you just said about our superiors and uh, supervisors and everything else, though, too, that even though agencies across the board may have done away with policy on physical fitness and things like that, the superiors and the you know supervisors they can still enforce certain things within their department. I mean, it's their department. You know, and whether it's roll call and things like that, they can sit there and say, oh, hey, today we're going to do fitness and things like that. You know, I mean, it's you can still enforce that because it's going to affect, you know, the camaraderie of anybody else or, you know, hey, I'm, I'm not riding along with dude today. You know, look at him. You know, and one of the things that, um, you know, Officer Hall and I were discussing in our past broadcast was that on like fatigue, you know, and, and especially like the Northwest and, and there's agencies across the the states that you know it's they're short staffed so you you have the officers you know working long hours 12 15 hour days and like officer hall he drives 45 hours one way be you know to, to get to work so then you're coming home and that that mental fatigue and kind of just going back to the way people dressed where yeah hey, i don't feel like handling that call and that fatigue plays on that too and then all of a sudden what's happening when you're responding to a call and you're just going 30 mile an hour like hey i'll get there when i get there opposed to you know being prepared and simple things like being dressed is like that and again going back to admiral mcraven about the you know start by making your bed you know you know make your dress uniform the first thing that you do make yourself presentable or it's it adds that believability for the civilian sector to come to you for help or you know take you serious when you're knocking on their door imagine responding to a domestic dispute and they open their door and here you are standing there you know shirt on shirt unraveled and food. Oh, yeah. well and not only that but i mean god forbid you know you you get into a major critical incident like a shooting or something they're going to take head-to-toe photos of you and that shit gets distributed all over the place and then you look like a complete slob <laughs> and you know you you Obviously, if you're not taking care of yourself and you got a bad attitude and all that kind of stuff, you're probably not training very well, especially on the range. And then, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, because I've had situations where it's, it just goes bad no matter what. But, you know, you shoot a guy 40 times that could have been taken down with three or four rounds. Now you look like shit. And now the defense attorney gets a hold of that and goes, well, the last time you qualled was a year and a half ago and you got like a, a freaking 205. And you had to do remedial, and then you got like a 208 or whatever it was, and you barely passed it. And now you show up on the stand and you look like a slob, and you not only you look bad, you got a bad attitude, you haven't trained, you haven't been practicing, you can't shoot, you know, you're really you're not doing anything, you're gonna freaking lose that case all day long, you know. And then God forbid you get named as the the main defendant on something like that and your name goes on there you know as the you know the one that's going to end up paying off on that kind of stuff because now like an example is like with the wounded blue when their your department turns their back on you for whatever there happened to be their reasoning was now you're freaking hung out to dry it's like well you probably should have been paying more attention to what you should be doing as a professional and like it or not i mean no matter how you slice it, the citizens of our communities that we protect, they deserve professional response. That's just a fact, you know, and if they have a problem with that, you know, that's, that's a problem for me too. So here I am preaching to the 
you know, like I'm some freaking hot shot, <laughs> which I'm not. So, no, I mean, that, that's that's the truth, though. I mean, it, and it, it goes a long way, though. You know, I mean, it's just that, you know, because it's going to prepare them for the next call, the next call, the next call, and everything else, too. And, you know, it doesn't have to be the superiors, you know, it's, you know, the fellow brothers and sisters and things like that, just lifting each other up and pulling everybody up. You know what I mean? It's just that, you know, if you let somebody walk out the door or, you know, go out for the day in their car or whatever, the, you know, on patrol, whatever the case was, without addressing them, you're just as guilty as they are for the way that they look or the way that they're carrying themselves or the attitude that they have and anything else. You know, we have to, you know, be more proactive in our bringing up, you know, certain things and pulling, you know, each other up and addressing these certain things like, hey, do you feel like even being here today? You know, maybe maybe you should go, you know, ask Sergeant Captain for, for leave or something today, you know, and, and manning up and saying that, you know what I mean? Because it's just that, you know, because if somebody does have that attitude, you know, they could get themselves killed, their fellow brother or sister with them killed, you know, civilians and everything else. So, it's, you know, we have to be more proactive in, you know, letting them know that, hey, you know, maybe you should take a day today. And I, I, I wish more guys would do that. You know, I really do. I wish that I had been smart enough to do more of that, you know, and, you know, take that time off and do whatever. But don't, you know, don't do what a lot of guys do. And I'm, I'm kind of generalizing here, which isn't really fair to do. But, you know, you, you take that day off and then you're still completely unproductive. You know, what do you do? You go home and you... You know, you drink a 12-pack or you freaking get on Xbox or whatever it is that you do, which is probably very entertaining for you. But if you're if you're taking a stress day or whatever it is, go do something positive, man, and, and kind of turn that around. So when you come back to work the next two or three days or whatever it is that you come back for, you know, you kind of reset. You know what I mean? So, Well, you know, you know, it's funny about you saying that about the playing the Xbox. You don't know how many how many and i mean how many individuals i know that swear as as you know they've told you as well that i know i'll never draw a firearm yet they'll sit at home on xbox or playstation on call of duty blasting and blasting and blasting and it's just like you know oh you're willing you're, you're willing to uh play superhero on these games but you can't uh, actually do it in real life at your actual job that you have the opportunity to do that you know yeah yeah <laughs> And I mean, it makes sense. I mean, I get it because of a lot of fear and so forth. And, you know, every single guy that I've talked to that has said that they will refuse to pull the trigger. It's not because they're afraid of taking a life. It's they're afraid of what their department's going to do to them if they if they make a mistake. And, and a lot of that goes with that second guessing that we were saying as far as the, you know, you know, superior second guessing you and second guessing you. It's going to create that hesitation factor every call that you go on. Should I even draw my firearm? Is it okay to draw my firearm? You know, in a lot of the uh, civilian sector, you know, because of media, news, and everything else, they don't realize the taser. They don't realize that, you know, we have one cartridge in a, in a, a taser gun where if both of those hooks don't hit, it's, it's useless. Right. You know what I mean? It's useless. You know, and on top of that, you know, depending upon – you know, how close together the prongs are, you know, that's how that current runs. So if they're just sitting together, they're not feeling anything, you know, and it's sprung apart to where you want to actually, you know, have a pretty good distance, you know, so if you're point blank with the taser, it, it's, it's rendered useless, you know, so there's strategies on that as well too, to where, you know, the civilian sector isn't aware of that, 
it's not like you can just sit there and just you know deploy taser and you have to have you know certain distance they don't realize that that charge you know was only you know so many the five seconds pull it again pull it you know you can't it only lasts for so long right and if it's not you know close you know the spacing on it if one hook misses but one's in it's rendered useless you know so you know certain things like that that you know i'm not going to say that the, the civilian sector needs to be educated a little bit more on you know the actual possibilities but the media needs to stop portraying things to where all oh, they should have done this these little sideliners and things like that as well too so uh, i can i can talk about that all day long but um uh, we know that's probably not ever going to change. Now, there's been a handful of folks um, that are on our side that do believe that, you know, we had no choice and we got back into a corner and, and what have you. Um, I was talking to our lead instructor. He's a firearms instructor up in Pasadena the other day about how I'm going to run our range when my time comes in two weeks. And, you know, what we both agree on is that the uh the qualification thing this is the bottom of the barrel basic qual you know and guys i can't tell you how many times especially as a firearms instructor i would have guys and i'm sure i'm probably going to have a whole bunch of responses from this one from guys that know it's like you know two or three days before they got a qual they haven't qualified in a year they're calling me to get inside the indoor range so they can go practice the first question I asked him was, when's the last time you did any kind of firing at all? Dry fire or what have you? Oh, it's been like a year. Um, you know what? I love that you want to come practice, but no. I'm sorry. I'm not getting you in there. You're too fucking lazy to get in the range or, or pull your gun out and just dry fire once a week for five minutes. You know, you probably shouldn't be carrying a gun at all. So, Well, another thing on top of that as well, too, is, you know, and you're a perfect example of this, about those that blame lack of resources rather than like you know your cat toy story and everything else as far as the there's so many different things that you know officers can do to ready themselves and be proactive to where you know they don't have to wait for it to be range day they can do it on their own just as much you know they can come in on an off day and go hit the range and you know test fire and everything else like you said you know and that cat toy story is great you know it's yeah. your new laser toy <laughs> well you know, my theory on the whole thing is, and it's no secret that we all know you train at 100% to performance 70, and if you're lucky, you know, and I kind of equate mine because I train, I mean, I freaking train like nobody's business. I mean, fully kitted out, rolling around on the ground with my rifle and all the stuff and everything that I could learn, you know, I learned as much as I could, and then I would just practice and practice and practice and practice all the time, nonstop, every chance I got, even without ammunition and whatever it was. You know, I would just be walking up and down the freaking indoor range, lights out, whatever it was. And then when my time came, when that gunfight happened, you know, I was still, I, I like to think I was probably closer to 80%, but that's still, you're pretty far behind the curve. And that, I mean, in all reality, because we lost Dave, of course, that was a huge deal. But in reality, okay, I got, I took three rounds and didn't even get hit. And that was the biggest tactical experience I've ever had in my entire life. And I was still 20% behind the curve as a starting point, if that makes sense, you know, and I can only imagine if I hadn't trained as high as I had done before, how far behind the curve I would have been. This is why I bring up the, the basic qual, you know, and these guys want to just 
just get through the qual. I just got to make it through the qual. Okay, well, that's all great, but you're still out on the street. You're still out there with a vest and a gun in a patrol car, and you're doing the bottom of the barrel basic stuff. You know, when your day comes, you're gonna you're gonna fail more than likely. And, and on top of that, as well, yeah. too, that you know, a lot of the times it's, I mean, when your training consists of shooting paper targets, it. It, there's there's no real life to shooting yeah. paper targets. It's just the same thing with like you know somebody that's a boxer. You know you, you're hitting a punching bag that's not hitting you back or, or you exactly. know it, it's not training and you know and all day long oh, I can shoot this paper target at you know thirty yards and it's like okay well was it moving yeah it was coming this way <laughs> it's like the you, you're not getting proper training you know and you know are you hitting the course or or you just you know, going in there and just hitting the range and just shooting the paper targets, you know, so it's... Well, and here it is, too. I mean, this is no secret, you know. You have missed lunch. You're nine hours into your shift. You just got into a big fight with your wife on the phone. You had to chase this guy four blocks in the dark, and we all know bad guys aren't going to stand and let you shoot at him. Your freaking light's going to probably go out. He's hiding halfway behind a tree shooting at you all these other factors that you got going on, you know, you got to freak, you're being backlit all this, all these bad circumstances that Murphy likes to kick us in the ass with, you know, it's not like a static range where you're sitting there in a controlled environment where you're like, okay, when the target turns, raise and fire two rounds. Fucking that shit ain't real. I mean, that's great for the basic qual, but in real life, you're, everything changes. Everything changes across the board. I mean, this is where I came so close to failing with mine because I had that mindset of, okay, it's a shooting. Okay, bang, bang, bang. And now what happens? Oh, shit. The guy starts shooting back at me. And it's like, whoa, now what do I do? You know? And thank God I had kind of trained up to a higher level, even though I, I preach about how great of a, you know, as a student that I was. But I still failed several different ways across the board because of the shit that I did wrong. Instead of doing what I was trained to do and what I train other guys to do, but because I had that mindset of, well, this is how it's supposed to look versus kind of expanding my brain out now, of course, in that same situation, it would have been a whole different outcome, you know? Um, and of course you can't, you can't train for that, you know, specific gunfight because they're, they're never going to be the same. We all know that and that's no secret. So, right, and, you know, it's, you know, and again, like environment as well too, like, you know, possibilities of ricochet and everything else that's kind of you can't train for shit like that no nah. you know, I mean, you, know you, you can't <laughs> so. a couple of my buddies got into a really nasty shooting back way in it was like oh six or something and you know one of my buddies he gets up on a wood pile next to a fence and as he's trying to gain his composure the guy starts shooting at him and he loses his ability to to stand on his wood pile and cranks up around Round, if I'm not mistaken, round goes to a house and hits a, an eight-year-old, something sleeping in his bed paralyzes the kid, you know, because of environmental factors that you can't control. And he, he did the best he could with what he had. But that was also one of the situations where um, the helicopter's overhead and their light went out, so they had no light overhead. That wasn't helping. And then his rifle light went out on his gun, so he had no light. He really couldn't even see what he was shooting at, and then he loses his freaking balance and then as a unintentional discharge and ends up paralyzing a kid for the tune of like $14 million, you know? So it's like, ugh. 
And then the bad guys still survive. And and, and that's, you know, things like that as well, too, is why I'm a big, 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 big advocate on the 1911 series on the firearm, especially like the 45, because, you know, it, it has that double safety. It has the grip safety plus the firearm safety as well, too. Yeah. Where you know a lot of times, especially in distress and especially like when fired at and things, you know, just that that trigger, but having that grip safety, especially when you know pulling from holster, you know, you can kind of grab with hands instead of pressing down to grab, you know, the grip and everything else like that. Where the 1911 has that 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 dual safety and everything else too, and I really think that you know a lot more law enforcement officers should actually kind of have that as utilization. Because yeah. it does protect their own selves and for incidents like that happen. Where it's just that, you know, in a struggle to where you just fire out rather than being able to get com- regain composure and, you know, be ready to fire as well. So, yeah, it's tough. I mean, no matter how great you think you are. I mean, my one of my closest friends, you know, years back, he got into a really nasty gunfight and um, kicks himself in the ass still to this day because he didn't perform what he thought he should. I'm like. Dude, come on, man. The guy's he's cranking off rounds at you from however many yards away. And, you know, he's running away from me as you're shooting. I mean, how can how great can you expect yourself to be, you know? <laughs> I mean, well, so. you know, it, 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 and it may sound like a stupid analogy, but it's the same reason why you hear shh, shh in a library because of distraction. You know what I mean? It sounds like a stupid analogy, but that's real life because it's like, you know, as you're trying to focus on one thing, those outside, you know, distractions coming in, it's going to take you on something that, like you said earlier about that training of 100% to where when you're really there, you're at that 80, 70, and the more distractions that it is, the lower that number goes on preparedness and things like that in the moment. So, yeah. Well, and then again, the environmental factors and what you've dealt with that particular day is your mind into the whole thing. And are you caught off guard? Are you ambushed? I mean, there's, there's so many different things that could, that could factor into that whole thing, you know? And then, I mean, I had a really good friend of mine. Um, fucking just talked to him a couple of weeks ago. He was part of drug enforcement and they guy came up and tried to jack him and he pulled out his gun and freaking the click loud as how loud as sound you ever going to hear, you know, because he didn't, he didn't train. And, he didn't have a freaking round chambered. <laughs> like, well, hell, you think? How do you do that? <laughs> exactly. You know? But luckily, he had another. He had a kid riding with him. Another, another ride along that was tested for DEB. Got out of the car and was heads up, was prepared for it, and was uh, ready to get it on and reach over the road of the car and freaking cranked off around and, and put the guy down. You know, but that, that's a bad situation, man. And that's something you, you know. How long has this been going on for? You know, how long has it has your weapon been in that condition? You know, when's the last time you pulled it out and looked at the damn thing? You know, and you've seen us a hundred times where you you get guys up there and they're blowing the dust bunnies off of their, you know, off their weapons and stuff. It's like, what are you doing, dude? You know, so. But. And that is that that is true too. You know, because a lot, you know, a lot of individuals think that you know just preparing and knowing how to shoot the firearm is preparedness to where, you know, you have to make sure that, you know, everything's properly, you know, grease, the slide's good, spring's good, fire pin's good, everything else as well, too, to where it's, you know, you you have to know your tool, period, you know, it's, that's preparedness. 
Yeah, you know, and I mean, it's it's a big joke mostly, but that's partially why I named the rifle, you know, because I had such a connection with that gun, you know, and I knew that based on my ship magnet status that it was a, probably a statistical destiny I was going to get involved with some critical incident. Who knew it was this is my true. rifle. There are many like it, but this one is mine. <laughs> exactly right, man. I tell you. So, uh, um, but I had that. I mean, I wasn't obsessive by. I mean, I've seen a lot of guys that are like crazy, like nutty about that kind of stuff. But you know, when it came time to to train and deploy, I mean, I took that seriously. You know, and I, I mean, I, I named it more of as a joke than anything else, just for more fun for me. Um, but truth be told, I knew that that thing was you know, an extension of me that's going to save my life. And it did. Thank God. And yes, sir. saved my life the once in 2013 and then saved my life and additionally put down a cop killer at the same time. You know, it's like, Oh shit. You know, so, you know, you know I mean, it, and on, on top of that, you know, and that's one of them out of sight, out of mind things again as well too, that, you know, you know, un unfortunately, you know, we lost, you know, a great man, David Glasser, but, you know, how many other civilians by you being able to make that decision and not just a decision, but a fucking split second decision that you ultimately could have saved the lives of other fellow brothers and sisters or even any civilians that may have been in the you know vicinity as well, too. Man. So yeah. Yeah. that was miraculous that nobody else was killed out there. I mean, I I kind of misquoted my own self when I said that, you know, Dave took three rounds and I took three rounds. That's not entirely true because there were several other people that were standing behind Dave and my, my true meaning behind that is basically Dave was what the guy was aiming at, you know, but there were several, like I said, there were several other people standing behind him that also took those three rounds. Um, Dave just took them all. I mean, he took two out of the three and same thing with me. He just happened to be aiming at me, but there were several other guys standing behind me as well. So those guys that I didn't mention are, are not being credited for what they had to deal with as well. And that was, that was completely unintentional. It was more on the side of, you know, because that's what he was aiming at. That's where that, that kind of mentality came in. And uh, be perfectly honest with you, when I wrote that part of the story, I was still pretty much in a fog. So I'm not trying to justify or, or, or turn back the clock on, on what I wrote because it's in there now and it's, it's not going to change. But uh, what I'm trying to say is the guys that were there too, um they get as much credit for for being in harm's way as as me and david were so yeah well on top of that too you know so one of the things that you know a lot of times somebody will say hey you saved somebody's life but a lot of individuals don't understand the magnitude of saving a life a lot of individuals don't understand that you didn't just save a life you ultimately saved generations of you know of the family of that individual whose life you saved or the families of the individual's lives that you saved the multiple individuals you know what i mean people don't look at it like that to where you know ultimately by you saving that one life that individual has another child they have a child they have a, you saved generations of people you know and it's a lot of you know, oh, it was nothing. I just did my job. But it's the you, you literally saved generations of people. You didn't just save one person. You know, I mean, it's that's out of sight, out of mind to too many people where it's like, oh, yeah, hey, 
Well, yeah, I, I, my life was saved. You know, it's a, anybody that I'm in direct relationship to, if I have children and they have children, they have children, they have children. People don't see it like that. But that's the way yeah. that people need to view, you know, what you did, what other officers do. And, you know, even, the, you know, all first responders in general, to where when you save a life, you're saving fucking generations of fucking people, man. Well, it's hard enough to get cops to admit that they went above and beyond to begin with, you know, myself included, because I kind of feel like, just like you said, I was just, I just happened to be the guy out there that was lucky enough to put the guy down when I did. But um, I feel unlucky that I was there at all. I really wish I had no part of it, but clearly I was put there for a reason. Um, you know, and just like you always say about the, hey, if it's my time, you know, with, with, you know, God says it's my time, it's my time. The same sense goes to where, you know what, it's, if it's my time to act, it's my time to act. Yeah, it goes both ways, you know what I mean? So if it's my time to go, it's my time to go. But, you know, a lot of people don't actually take that time to act when it really is their time to act, you know? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of it for me was, uh, I mean, we, we hear this a hundred times over all the time, you know, the training kicked in and all that kind of stuff. And it did for, for sure, no questions asked. But I think also it was... Uh, you know, we haven't seen my presentation yet, but a lot of it was in the very initial stage was based on fear. And then very quickly after that, it was based on rage, you know, and that first that first bout of fear was like, oh, shit, I don't like this. I, uh, you know, I've never I mean, I've been shot at multiple times. I mean, more times than I can count. And the way I described the difference is that watching a guy point a gun at you and then pull the trigger that's where the fear kicked in for me. I'm like, wait a second. No, they're not supposed to do that. I don't like this anymore. You know, and, um, when I got past all that and then, you know, my little red dot and my reticle turned into a gigantic freaking pie plate sized rage induced, you know, whatever you want to call it, a fit of rage. And then I came back up with that second volley. It was like, oh shit, you know, now it's, now it's out of straight up anger, you know, and, um, very, very, very much, very huge portion of it is that survival mode of, you know, uh, you're not, you're not going to kill me today. It's just not going to happen kind of a thing, you know. Um, and especially when you just witnessed, you know, you know, even, even, even not knowing that, you know, seeing a brother or sister get shot or even a, a civilian getting shot, even not knowing whether it's life or death for them, it's an automatic death thought, you know, to where, hey, that's not going to be me either. And it, that, that fit of rage, I mean, it's justified. You know what I mean? Yeah, where yeah. it's just that, so, I mean, it's, I mean, no, nobody can really, again, because every situation is going to be different. You know, you know, you can be in a 50 gunfights and one's going to, you know, be different every time. Man. So yeah, it's, right. for sure. Yeah, so uh, yeah, this might be a good opportunity to call. It's been two and a half hours, so yes, sir. It's always a good call. talk to you for yeah. days, brother. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So hey, I appreciate it. Then, um, you know, we'll get the next one scheduled. I thank all the viewers for you know viewing today and the comments and yeah, you know, that's why I do this is for the actual feedback and things like that too. And you know, some of the ones making the comments, you know, it's the all we have to do is uh, uh, be able to, you know, kind of share the link if they want it to actually be important instead of just making the comments. 
you know, like if you want to invite Lindsay on or something like that, you know, that's why I wanted to kind of have John on as well, too, because, you know, he and I have been kind of talking about what you do and he wanted to be a part of it. You know, I'd love to have more individuals on here to where, you know, we get the feedback, you know, about this book. Man. I mean, it, it's we really do need to have that. I mean, you need to actually have that feedback as well, too, I believe, because, you know, it's in that feedback that, you know, you hear from us on how you can actually deploy that when you go into the different agencies and provide the training. Because, you know, it may be something that we bring up, that they bring up, that you can be like, oh, hey, yeah, maybe this is something that I need to have for a talking point when you're going in there and talking to the brothers and sisters. So, yeah, you know, I mean, I still feel like I'm just a really tiny little fish because there's plenty of guys out there that have as much or more experience than I do. Then they should be doing the exact same thing. They should be out there telling their story to folks because there's a lot of guys out there that, um, that are in kind of that denial mode, you know, like I very much like I was in the Academy when I heard that one story about the guy from another agency, he's like, yeah, I did this and this and this, and I had to put the guy down. I'm like, that shit doesn't happen, you know? And then all of a sudden here I am a year later in that same situation, you know, it's like, oh, this shit does happen, you know? Yeah. But I mean, it, it is, it, it is this right here. And then you going out there and doing that, that the individuals that should be putting everything down on paper, put it down on paper. You know, and it's oh, like, yeah. okay, you know, it, it's so it's so great that, you know, like Michael Segru, you know, with his Relentless Courage book, you know, about to come out with, you know, uh, Dr. Shauna Springer, yep. you know, also, you know, helping with that as well, too. I mean, it's just that we we need that. We need that. And we need that, you know, and, and especially with culture changing so much as it is, you know, it's the your, your book for pr preparing individuals. <laughs> Again, I. You know, how many times I always go back to the title of your book being fucking genius, but, you know, it's it's what we need. You know, we need more brothers and sisters to actually, you know, and they don't even have to be retired. You know, individuals that are active right now could be, you know, writing the book. Oh, yeah. You know, it's the, and like I was telling Officer Hall, you know, the gentleman that was just on here with us that, you know, almost every phone now has a voice recorder on it. You know, just voice record notes and just, you know, write it down later on. You just never know. It's like, and especially a lot of times when it's fresh in your mind, fresh in the moment, that emotion's going to be captured. And I, I don't think I've read a book. I mean, I'm not going to say I haven't read a book, you know, because War was a great book. But there's so much emotion in this right here to where that's what encapsulates the message. That's what makes fucking people pay attention to what's going on when that raw emotions being you know displayed on the pages and everything else too so yeah thank you again <laughs> yeah i had no idea it was going to turn out the way that it did but i'm glad that it's making an impact you know so well it's it's, it's only started chris it's only started trust me well i mean it's no secret that i i welcome all the feedback i mean whoever wants to talk i mean i i like to consider myself some kind of a little bit of an advocate too that i can you know, if I don't know the answer, you know, I can direct people to people that are much more, you know, in tune with this kind of stuff than I am. But, you know, I do have a fair amount of experience under my belt now. And I can say, hey, you know what? This is what works for me. Take it on board. If it works for you, great. If not, then take the awareness part and then just go to the next level, whatever that happens to be for you. Because it's going to be different for everyone. Every situation is going to dictate differently as well. So. Yeah, the, uh, people's and reaction times and stuff like that too you know yeah and it's not just the law enforcement community either i know obviously this is a you know, law enforcement based kind of a thing but it's all about the families and you know 
first responders community. I mean, it can be anybody. I mean, all the stuff that I that I talk about, yeah, it is. It is all cop stories and stuff, but it's still just basic real life stuff, you know. So well, it's relevant to everyone, and that's why I always go back to, you know, the beginning of this book. So you know, another brother, uh, Nick Richardson. Like I was telling you, you know, because I've kind of referred him over for Matt to edit his book that he's wanting to do as well too, because it's so relevant for military first responders in that questioning of ourselves of if this is what we're wanting to go in and do yeah. you know what i mean making that commitment and things like that and that progression there along so i don't care if it's military i don't care if it's law enforcement emt firefighter i don't care what it is this book is relevant it's it, this is relevant to the civilian sector <laughs> you know i mean so i thank you again and i thank you again i look forward to our next conversation and everything else man Stay safe and stay blessed in all things, brother. All right, man. I will catch up with you soon. Yes, sir. Uh.